And I'm here to tell you, 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. Doesn't matter how many lemmings you get out there on the street begging for them to have their guns taken. We will not relinquish them. Do you understand? My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. Uh, in just a moment, I am going to be joined by Rob Larson, Alex Gurevich, and Matt Karp uh, for a discussion about freedom, how to conceptualize it, how it relates to capitalism and socialism, uh, and all of that good stuff. This is an episode I've been wanting to do for a while. Uh, the, uh, the clip that you just heard uh, was, of course, uh, professional nutjob Alex Jones uh, arguing with, uh, with Piers Morgan on CNN uh, several years ago. Uh, and, and I played it because I think that sometimes when some people on the left hear this word freedom uh, and a lot of emphasis being put on freedom as opposed to other important values like equality or compassion, uh, you know, what we associate with that with is basically uh, Alex Jones ranting about how 1776 uh, will, uh, will, begin, uh, will begin again. Um, and I think that that's an important mistake. I think it matters uh, that we, um, you know, that, that, we, that we really reclaim that concept, that we center it in everything that we do. Uh, and that is going to be what I'm going to be talking to Rob and Alex and Matt about. Uh, after that, for the Outlaws and Revolutionaries segment, uh, back today after a one-week break, uh, I am going to, uh, to be talking uh, to um, David Griscom, who, by the way, just, uh, just started a new show with Matt Leck uh, that everybody should check out uh, called uh, Left Reckoning. And uh, we are going to be talking about Sturgill Simpson uh, and, uh, and his uh, Cutting Grass album, which is fantastic. Uh, Drank some uh, some Ardbeg and uh, and listened to that last night. Right now, I am uh, I am joined uh, by uh, by Rob Larson, who is the um, the in-house economist at Current Affairs Magazine, and uh, among several others, the uh, the author of a uh, among several other books that he wrote is the author of a book most relevantly for this discussion called Capitalism and Unfreedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom, which is of course a play on uh, two uh, classic libertarian books, uh, which would be uh, Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman uh, and The Road to Serfdom by Hayek. So uh, welcome, Rob, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks, man. Uh, thanks for having me. Always good to be on Give Them an Argument or if it's Alex Jones' show, Give Them a Hysterical Screaming Match. They're both good. <laughs> yeah, of course. Since that clip was uh, was you know since that discussion originally happened on uh, on CNN, uh, Alex Jones uh, got divorced and in court uh, with it, um, you know for for the custody battle uh, argued that uh, uh, his lawyers argued that this was uh, this was just a persona. So uh, so the sort of angry hysterical. Um, figure that he cuts normally shouldn't be taken seriously against him for, you know, when it comes to deciding the custody of kids. I've always wondered how his fans, of which there are still many, reconcile that. But, you know, who knows? Who indeed? That's, it, it'll, it'll be the six, it'll only be the 6,000 craziest thing that they believed. Craziest thing. So it's, it won't be that bad. Well, that is certainly fair. Um, 
they, uh, you know, I, I guess once you've accepted the, um, the lizard people and, you know, and, and yeah. the, all that stuff, like really like what is, oh, he was, you know, I don't know, the court records were falsified or, or the globalists made him say that or, you know, whatever. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's his lawyer and, and, his, and his awful wife. Like, that's so easily rationalized by Red people. I don't think that's going to be tough for them. Fair enough. Uh, so on, uh, in terms of, of non-insane conceptions of freedom, right? You know, this is, uh, this is what I wanted to, uh, to have you on uh, to talk about because a lot of, okay, so for example, like last week um, I, I debated this guy, uh, Walter Block, uh, who is yes. uh, like you, an economist, uh, and, uh, and somebody who comments on politics. I think those are the only things you have in common. But, um, you know, but in there, you know, he gave like a fairly standard uh, sort of deontic libertarian pitch, uh, which uh, which goes something like this. Uh, you you can't, um, when you do things like, uh, you know, redistributive taxation, uh, you, or, you know, certainly much less like the sorts of things that people like us would want, you know, nationalizing uh, industries, you know, converting things into worker-owned firms, stuff like that, uh, you are violating uh, the, uh, the freedom of the business owners, uh, which is a framing that I think uh, has been remarkably successful, not just in that sort of extremist fringe libertarian form, uh, but, you know, but more widely, right? Like, even if you think about like the rhetoric of the GOP, you know, it's, it's all about uh, freedom, not just in terms of guns, but in terms of economics. Uh, and, and even and a lot of people who are somewhere in between being like liberal left or being social Democrats, or even who really think of themselves as socialists, essentially accept that freedom, right? They, they accept that premise. They say, uh, well, I disagree with their conclusions because I think that freedom is less important than some competing value, like, um, you know, compassion, equality, you know, whatever, you know, pick the competing value. Uh, but while I, while that is, you know, I mean, I, I, well, whereas I do think that you do often have to uh, weigh competing values, that that's, that's a real thing, uh, you know, when, when they come into conflict, which they can, uh, I, I think it's it's also a response that like really severely undersells the kind of case that we make, right? So so why do you call this book capitalism and unfreedom? Yeah, right on, man. Well, you're absolutely right. Like that is the big uh, uh, dominant framing around freedom for sure. And you're right; it's not just a right wing thing. I remember, uh, yeah, right when uh, my book was coming out, uh, Carl Carl Beiger. Where's it Carl Beyer, the uh, yeah. uh, great socialist writer whose work we all enjoy. He had a very, you know, a very thoughtful uh, article he posted saying that the left, broadly speaking, shouldn't be trying to make freedom one of our issues. Like the right owns that too much. Mm. And so we should give up on that and focus yeah, on equality or other issues that we uh, leftists tend to focus on, like sustainability and uh, inclusion and stuff like that. And again, as you said, like these are all legitimate things we should be pushing for. You know, rights aren't axioms like they overlap and they contradict each other and shit. That's fine. Uh, but I would disagree with Carl. You know, I think there is a lot for us on the left. Uh, there's a lot to be gained by thinking about freedom and yeah, using it as something that uh, we're fighting for by changing capitalism and the rest of the uh, society, uh, but also something we don't, and I th it's, it's too good of ground to just 
seed to the right. Like that's, they will beat us with that till the end of time. I mean, they probably will anyway, but it's, we should be contesting that ground too, I think. Yeah. So I wrote capitalism versus freedom to kind of go after uh, that ground a little bit. And at least I uh, give folks thinking about ways where you can argue with your yeah, libertarian friends. And there's, you know, we all have plenty of those, sadly, uh, yeah. up to and including uh, Dr. Brock. So uh, in the book, basically, I just take the, the most conventional framing philosophically, as I understand it, for freedom and liberty takes that sort of traditional differentiation between negative and positive forms of freedom. Negative where you're sort of free from outside power centers dictating to you. So so with capitalism, you're free to shop for whatever kind of pants you wish to buy, and you can choose what kind of career you want to foolishly go into. And since we're free from anyone dictating those choices to us in the market, we're supposed to be, uh, you know, at, have our liberty uh, protected by that. Uh, but other figures like Isaiah Berlin and even John Mill talked about positive freedom or sometimes positive rights, uh, where it's about what you're free to do with your liberty. And uh, the idea there is, you know, how free are you to actually achieve different things? Like you might be free to, you might have the right to have healthcare, but if you're poor or you work part-time in capitalism, you know, you don't have any positive right to healthcare. Something like Medicare for all would be trying to acknowledge that people have positive freedom to things that society is capable of producing. Like once we reach that uh, big growing capitalist material level where we can do something realistically, like provide healthcare for everybody, you know, we socialists would say there's a positive uh, freedom or entitlement or right to that. Uh, but this is, you know, as you said, this is good ground. We shouldn't just give this up uh, to crazy pieces of shit like Alex Jones or more moderate, sensible sounding uh, conservatives that we deal with every day. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, look, I mean, if nothing else, uh, you know, the most uh, successful left-wing movement of, um, you know, certainly at least since the rise of the big industrial unions, you know, in, in the 1930s, uh, it was the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, uh, which despite the fact that uh, one of its central goals was restricting what business owners could do, right, you know, taking, the, taking those whites-only signs out of the windows, uh, you know, was very successful in, in, in claiming that rhetorical ground, right? It's the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Uh, and, and that's worth thinking about. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that I, I like the way that you, that you framed that about, um, about positive freedom, right? I think, for example, um, I don't know, I know this is kind of a deep cut. It's from a few years ago. I don't know how many people remember it, but uh, in like 2017, maybe, uh, there was a, a debate, like a sort of pseudo-presidential kind of debate between Bernie Sanders and uh, Ted Cruz uh, about healthcare, uh, where where Cruz was using this this wording about um, being free to buy healthcare, uh, and and Sanders says, "Yeah, I mean, I'm also free to you know to buy one of Donald Trump's houses, but you know, like I, I don't know what what good uh, what good that does anybody." Uh, and and it's it's also worth thinking about how that relates to uh, to substantive life options. And this is definitely where I want to, you know, what people can you know can do with their lives, what projects they can pursue. And this is definitely where I want to bring things back at the uh, the end of the discussion. bring in the other two panelists uh, who are two 
of my favorite uh, left-wing historians, uh, which uh, are uh, Jack been contributing editor, uh, Matt Karp, uh, and um, Alex, uh, Alex Gurevich, uh, who, uh, who I talked to over the summer uh, on the, uh, the Jacobin YouTube channel about, um, you know, the Knights of Labor and, and a lot of that discussion, and I think uh, relates to this uh, in a pretty direct way. This is kind of how even back then I had the idea for this discussion. So, um, so yeah, uh, welcome guys. Uh, Matt, how you doing? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. I just uh, enjoyed the discussion about, um, I completely agree with Rob about the, uh, I, I'm guessing Al, Alex does too, but I'll let him weigh in on the, the, the need not to cede the ground of freedom to the right. I mean, that's basically been Eric Foner's life mission over the last 50 years. And I guess by that, uh, if you define it that way, Eric Foner has failed in his life mission, but I mean, he's been writing books about, you know, the civil war era and reconstruction kind of, you know, every single one of them with the title freedom and often accompanied by an op-ed that says, you know, freedom is something that egalitarians should care about. Um, and, you know, here's the historical, you know, here's a key historical moment where freedom was something that the left fought for and won in, in significant respect. Um, uh, and yeah, no, clearly uh, that argument has not even been won within the left yet, but um, it, it's a good, 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 Good segue to, to to the historical stuff there, maybe. Yeah, and and I think that it's something that maybe uh, it's it's important that it be one in the left uh, now in, in in particular because because we're starting to actually have a left again uh, in in a way that that outside of, of of academia, outside of marginal protest movements, you know, uh, we, we kind of didn't uh, for uh, for a long time. Uh, so, uh, so I, I think that uh, with with any luck, uh, Eric Foner's life mission will be a, a long, you know, <laughs> a, a, uh, indirect long term success because his arguments can can arm us to uh, to win it now. Uh, Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so like I said, it was it was that that discussion uh, with you uh, at uh, at Jacobin that kind of gave me the idea for this. Uh, and and I remember in uh, in particular to to start this a little bit out of order, and then I want to go back to the pre Civil War stuff. But uh, then in that discussion about the Knights of Labor, which is this you know radical socialist uh, early industrial labor union in the, uh, the late nineteenth century, um, there was a quote that you have. I do not remember who it was from, but it was he was quoted in one of your articles about the subject from I think maybe a Knights of Labor publication uh, where uh, somebody had a line where they were describing, um, you know, basically industrial capitalism as it was coming into its own and saying that uh, something of slavery still remains, something yeah. of freedom yet remains. That's So that's Iris Stewart, and who is a fantastic figure as this pivot figure for the 19th century. He's the child of abolitionists, leader of the eight hours movement, um, and uh, who wrote extensively about the need to regulate the hours of labor and to distribute work more equally so that nobody was forced to spend their entire lives working. Um, but that quotation that, that you mentioned, which comes from one of his, one of his writings, um, is he says, something of slavery still remains, something of freedom is yet to come, which was his view about um, what labor looked like after the Civil War and why he thought that the abolition of chattel slavery was an important advance, but didn't really complete the project of emancipation 
because it turned out that industrial wage labor was characterized by its own forms of unfreedom. Um, the most immediately obvious one was overwork. People working 12, 14, 16 hours a day for their entire lives, often dying early because of it. Uh, and which is why he thought that uh, the only way for people to achieve freedom was collectively and democratically through democratic regulation of the economy. And the eight hours laws were the kind of central sort of um, form of regulation that was meant to communicate uh, and, and be a first step in this emancipation of labor from the kinds of unfreedom that one experienced in wage labor. Yeah, which gets back to uh, to some of the point I was talking about with Rob about uh, how if you think of, of freedom as, as being like, you know, the kind of freedom or one of the kinds of freedom that's most important being our ability and practice to, to do what we want uh, with our lives, to, you know, to pursue, you know, the projects that we want, to have different life outcomes, uh, then, um, then certainly if you, you know, if you have to work, you know, most of your waking hours, you know, almost all of them, uh, that obviously, you know, I mean, that obviously undermines that, right? I mean, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good test case. Uh, but I do want to, uh, but I do want to go back and uh, and start with Matt, right? So if we if we think about the the movement against against slavery, which is certainly the most, um, you know, the most successful movement ever against the most extreme form of of unfreedom, you know, that you can uh, that you can possibly imagine, uh, it it starts uh, with those those abolitionists who are just referred to, but it's won uh, by, by the Republican, you know, by the Republican party winning an election and then by, you know, then by the union winning the civil war, you know, which is, which is a slightly different thing. So this is something, uh, this is something I've, I've read you write about in the past, Matt, uh, the way that uh, sometimes with a, with an eye towards, you know, current events parallels, like I've seen you use phrases like Abraham Lincoln's uh, political revolution, uh, you know, talk about how um, the movement against uh, against slavery in that form that became successful was a mass movement from the grassroots of society uh, that that was directed, um, you know, not just altruistically, you know, though certainly that, but against this idea that uh, what they called the slave power was a threat to to everybody's freedom. So, so can you just start to unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, it's interesting. They, just to start with the contemporary resonances, you know, I mean, you know, it, what's interesting is, you know, I won't pretend that I wasn't looking for them, you know, beginning to write this book and writing that, the article, you know, the, the most substantial piece was published in Catalyst uh, last winter. Um, uh, I can't pretend that I wasn't influenced by this mo moment, but, uh, you know, you go back and you find the, the, the phrases, the, the terminology, you know, certainly the ideas bear, you know, you don't have to look very hard. I mean, political revolution is a phrase that contemporaries used over and over and over again to talk about the Republican victory, you know, meaning specifically, you know, the sort of overthrow of a of an, of an entrenched ruling class that had dominated Washington politics. In effect, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, in, in incorporating both parties in the sort of two-party duopoly across the antebellum uh, decades, you know, for at least a generation. And the rise of the Republicans, the rise of an anti-slavery party meant, uh, you know, was, was, was understood as a political revolution because it, white, it wasn't simply like uh, that, you know, 
um, an underdog had won an election or, or, or something like that. Um, but that this new formation, which was, you know, in which, in which anti-slavery was sort of stitched on the platform and, and to the banner of the party and, and the mass politics of that election were all built around rallying, uh, you know, ordinary northerners against slavery, which I can, which I can talk about is to some extent, or against the extension of slavery, against the future domination of slavery, against the rule of slaveholders in Washington, all those things. Um, um, was a political revolution because um, of, in effect, the social consequences that it portended, that 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 uh, this new party had not only did not have any kind of loyalty or fealty toward the slaveholding class, which had really um, either dominated or at least significantly influenced both political parties, you know, uh, since the inception of the union. Yeah, I mean, that's um, what you're uh, that's what. Uh, this vast Southern empire, you know, was, was, right. was about, right? Like that. This, this, this wasn't just some sort of like weird sectional, you know, side interest. This was really like a dominant force in American politics. Right. Absolutely. They were, you know, the slaveholding class in, in various guises as, as Whigs, as Democrats and as members of the political parties before the Whigs and the Democrats and the early Republic, you know, when one form or another exercised at a minimum, a kind of a break power on the federal government, such that the federal government virtually never, as you know, lots of historians have shown, either in foreign or domestic policy, exerted really any anti-slavery influence whatsoever. What anti-slavery that was meaningful that existed for the first 80 years of the Republic happened at the state level in the North. Um, and and, and that, that domination of the, of the national political system only grew more intense across the mid-19th century from, the, say, the age of Andrew Jackson or so, the 1830s through until Republican victory in 1860. But to, to, to speak on the point that you, you, you raised at the beginning, I mean, a, another contemporary resonance is, um, you know, is the, the, the effort that, that, that I argued in this, in this Catalyst piece, but that I think characterizes a huge um, portion of, of the sort of Republican political mission, which is to turn to, to sort of translate anti-slavery from a movement of activists, from a movement of kind of humanitarians and philanthropists to a movement of mass politics in which, yes, the not only the moral sensibilities, um, but the material needs and aspirations of ordinary northerners were involved. And that's not to create a rigid distinction between those two things that, you know, in fact, it's the whole point is to fuse them together. And, and that's what, you know, various, you know, um, uh, anti-slavery idea, political ideas and, and concepts in rhetoric and in, and in practice kind of at, uh, in political practice attempted to do, you know, some of them were, you know, some of those practices involved, you know, strikingly contemporary things like the mass rally, you know, which existed, of course, before, but was really coming up to its own in the mid 19th century. And, you know, and Republicans had, in effect, anti-slavery mass rallies all over the North in which, you know, yes, they, they were in, in, intended to elect John C. Fremont or elect Abraham Lincoln, but they were really uh, the, their function was to propagandize the, the the crimes and the the danger of the of the slave power. And yes, another Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say, let's, you, you set me off on this. I'm like a wind up. No, 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 go for it. Go for it. So <laughs> please jump in and shut me down or, or direct the conversation. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to say, right, that the uh, I, I, I was hoping that you could that you could get into this more uh, that like what danger they saw from from the slave power to them. Right. Well, I think I mean, so, yeah, the, the material a- a- end of it for one. 
Um, I think, I mean, and this may connect to, to the discussion about, about, about freedom and about the sort of question of self-government. For one, what, part of the critique was, was what, we would, what we would identify today as a critique of minority rule, that, that this very tiny percent of the population somehow dominated um, far beyond its new numbers and even far beyond its wealth, it dominated the political system in the South and then therefore through the nation. And again, another contemporary residence, I make a lot of this, but it, it's sitting there right there in, in, in the congressional globe. You know, William Seward, the foremost Republican of, of the 1850s, probably, you know, goes on about how slaveholders represent not one hundredth part of the population. He's literally calling them an antebellum one percent, about 300,000 slaveholders in a republic of 30 million. It, the, the math works out. It's like one and a half percent, maybe, you know, if you say, if, you know, 350,000 slaveholders. Anyway, um, uh, and, and so so part of it is is that this this class is ruling the republic um, undemocratically and stifling the needs of the majority. So what are those needs materially in, in terms of 19th century material politics? Some of them are about the, the settlement of Western land. You know, that's the most famous one, the kind of the, the extension of slavery to the West will end up reserving vast swaths of land um, for, for, for slaveholders as opposed to ordinary farmers. Yes, that gets into the question of settler colonialism, but, 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 you know, we'll bracket that for a minute. Um, it has to do with tariffs and wages and how the political economy of slavery insisted on low tariffs and, and, and in effect, in some ways, low wages for Northern workers. Um, uh, it, it has to do with the, in effect, what the, the, the capacity of the federal government where, where, you know, to build infrastructure, to build rivers and harbors, to do it, to build a department of the interior, internal improvements, but really, in effect, a version of universal public goods with a federal gut with an activist federal government. These are things that 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 weren't necessarily radical left programs, but um, but were being stifled by uh, the slaveholding class as a way to sort of preserve its power over a, over a, over a delimited federal government. And um, all of these things under the Republican banner became the uh, kind of way in which anti-slavery, uh, by toppling the slave power, could speak both to the sort of very, very material and very concrete needs of northern workers who are concerned about wages, about land, about internal improvements, and yet realize that the thing that was stifling, that was blocking all of these, all of these goods, was this, this also morally... Um, uh, you know, morally, you know, criminal slaveholding class that by not by accident ruled through the extraction of other men's labor and other people's labor without their consent. Yeah. So uh, so the, the concerns, uh, you know, so the, there's the concern about wages. There's the concern about um uh, you know, about government projects that, that, you know, can't be engaged in, you know, because they, uh, you know, because they conflict with the interests of this antebellum 1%. Uh, and, uh, and a point that I, I remember, uh, I remember Alex brought up in that, that Jacobin talk. So, you know, if either one of you, you know, want to, uh, want to speak to this, uh, is that in, uh, in some, you know, antebellum anti-slavery agitation, there's this kind of suggestion that I think is is closely linked to that sort of democratic rhetoric about this being not you know one one hundredth you know the population uh, that the habit of uh, of living in this way that's based on the extreme domination of others you know slavery actually makes it impossible to then relate to anybody else as an equal. Yeah. So. Uh Matt gave a fantastic picture of the kind of material foundations of, of this conflict. Um, and I think one thing that happens in the context of those conflicts is then a competition over um, how to think about what the material foundations are of um, freedom. So you have the, 
the slave owners and the slaveocracy did tend to speak of themselves as the true defenders of freedom, but that's because they held onto a view that the freedom of some presupposed the unfreedom of others. So a self-governing republic requires a kind of class that is freed from the requirements of toil that gets on with the business of government and democratic politics. And, uh, but you can only be emancipated from, uh, you can only be free in the relevant sense of being independent if there's someone else who isn't just working, but doing the work for you. And the critics of slavery recognize, I think that they couldn't just cede the ground of freedom to the, these reactionaries, as they were, that they had to actually expose this as a false notion of freedom and the false way of thinking about self-government because they saw that what this actually led to was the cultivation, the cultivation amongst this 1% of the habits of domination, of beliefs about superiority, that freedom was realized in and through the domination of others, and that it meant that everybody was potentially subject to the rule and control of this small sect of truly fully independent and free individuals. And so the alternative, there were sort of two ways of two alternative ways of thinking about freedom. One was just this very individualized and individuated idea of the kind of peasant sort of peasant proprietor or landowner who sort of was off on the farm, didn't rely on anyone else's freedom, didn't rule over anyone else, just ruled oneself. But the one that really gets going, and it was in a kind of it stood in an uneasy relationship, I think, to the slave owner's view of freedom. Um, but the one that I think was most at odds, which you saw amongst abolitionists, amongst parts of the labor movement, amongst the kind of intertwining of abolitionism and the labor movement was the idea that true freedom required not that there be some subject working class, but the elimination of a separate working class, that everyone had to participate as equals in creating the conditions that would allow everyone to enjoy the same kinds of freedoms, including freeing everyone from the need to work all the time. So if everybody cooperated as equals, then everyone could be freed from the maximum economic pressure. Uh, everyone could enjoy a certain amount of leisure. Everyone could have enough time to cultivate themselves and the habits uh, and knowledge necessary to participate in public life. And so true freedom meant not slavery because that was false. It just led to creation of these habits of domination, which were visible not just in the racial relations, but in the relationships between the slave owning whites and the poor whites. Um, but instead to a society based on equality where everybody understood that the freedom that each enjoyed presupposed the freedom of everybody else. And um, I think it's the most powerful expression at the time of an alternative view, not just of freedom in the abstract, but of the material foundations of it on an economy organized on the basis of collective democratic control over the economy that secures everybody from having to be overworked or subject to the control of bosses and so on. And I think it's a vision that's attractive to us today as a way of thinking through an alternative way of thinking about the material foundations of freedom, of the, the fact that you cannot really um, defend freedom without thinking about how the or the economy and especially labor is organized. Yeah, and so uh, so of course that that brings us to uh, to Rob's book. But first, I want to uh, you know I want to I want to loop back a little bit, right? So because I think that that oftentimes you know talking about uh, you know that initial you know anti-slavery you know mass movement uh, emerging, you know which. I guess is first expressed uh, in the anti-slavery. Well, 
as a mass movement, right? I mean, I guess first there's the anti-slavery wing of the, of the Whigs, but then like what you're talking about, Matt, is, is really then the, you know, the emergence of the, uh, of the Republicans uh, and, and how that relates to, to some of this stuff that would, that would come up later about, you know, about labor and industrial capitalism, uh, I think might seem a little unclear in, in a couple of different directions. Are there, are there a couple of ways that maybe you can speak to that people could get this wrong? Because because uh, on the on the one hand, there's the sort of idea that like it 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 kind of um, it kind of doesn't right like that if you that if you if you want to just be like a really schematic Marxist about this right that's the you know you've got your you know bourgeois revolution that's maybe being fulfilled you know by the civil war uh, and and then you know and then that you know creates the possibility for something better but that's like the only the only real relationship uh, between those two things and then on the other hand I think. There's kind of a tradition on parts of the left of uh, of like quoting some like Abraham Lincoln comments about labor and capital and stuff in a slightly misleading out of context way. Uh, that little sermons, little sermons and socialism by Abraham Lincoln did, did a little pamphlet distributed by the by the Socialist Party in like 1910. That was a, it was a, it had a bunch of these gems. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so so where does uh, you know Lincoln's Lincoln's Republican Party? I mean, if if you like, all right, we accept that probably in context, you know, when he talks about labor and capital and stuff, he's actually not needing to endorse, you know, a uh, mark, you know, proto-Marxist account of exploitation. But uh, it's also not true that you know, sort of concerns about the welfare of industrial workers are foreign to this movement and its and its I, and like its stated motivations. I'd love to hear Alex's take on this, but I'll, I can go first, just from the just sort of. Uh, less about the economics, but maybe I can give a slightly uh, a historiographical version of that of that distinction, because I think there are arguments within among historians about how to understand this. One way to put it is just given the, the two speakers who've been featured thus far, how do you explain the, you know, basically the gap between Seward and Stewart? You know, how do you get from uh, a anti-slavery Republican Party that is it seems to sort of embody a lot of the sort of you know, um, the, the, the demand for a certain kind of positive liberty or at least a critique of, you know, slavery's violation of that, uh, of, of, of that understanding of freedom. Um, and then to a party that in the era of Ira Stewart in the, in the Gilded Age, you know, period becomes the kind of r- most remorseless uh, advocate of capital in, in the country. Um, and, you know, then becomes the most enthusiastic capitalist party in the history of the world, as, uh, as, as has been said. So, yeah, I think historiographically there are, you know, um, there are basically, you know, as, as often is the case, there's, you know, uh, arguments that emphasize continuity and arguments that emphasize change, you know. And I think you don't have to be a kind of a total, um, a, a totally, you know, you know, vulgaroid Marxist to say there were elements of the, you know, the, to, to trace a direct line from the kind of like bourgeois critique of slavery in the antebellum period that did flavor, you know, many uh, anti-slavery critiques of bondage uh, to the Gilded Age Republican Party. I mean, that's basically Eric Foner's interpretation in his classic work on Repu- pre-war Republican ideology. Now, I, you know, I think he, it's multivocal, so I don't think he's a hardliner on this. I think there are lots of things you can read in Foner, much as there are lots of things you can read in the sources. But my view is that, you know, that, that, that this, this is a story of change, not continuity. This is a story of an ideology that 
clearly contained the seeds for many different forests, you know, one of a, you know, one that Alex has described very well in his book that does feed into labor republicanism in the late 19th century. Um, but, uh, but sure, that also contained, you know, the seeds of, you know, bourgeois, you know, the, the sort of laissez-faire capitalism of the Gilded Age. Um, but, but, that, but that what really happened is, you know, the, civil, the, the political economy of the nation changed between 1856 and 1880, you know, or even 1876. And, um, you know, the rise of finance capital, um, you know, there are, in Wall Street, you know, not, not unrelated to the sort of need to finance the war, the kind of growing importance of industry and the, and the sort of, you know, uh, and, and the power of, of, of the, uh, you know, the, you know, the industrialist class. Um, and um, the kind of the, the truth that in some ways Lincoln's vision of this kind of, you know, democratic Republican, you know, in effect, uh, Republic of petty proprietors was already out of date by the 1850s. You know, no man should have to, you know, should work a wage for life, Lincoln says, um, which is, you know, quite a, you know, quite a bold statement. We would l- love to hear, you know, Bernie Sanders say that. That's far to the left of 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 any, you know, contemporary, you know, on, on pure economics, arguably, that's yeah. far to the left of any, you know, contemporary left figure. And yet it was clearly um, not true by, you know, in, in reality, and it became even less true in aspiration, but, you know, according to the, 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 the policy of the Republican Party in power, even as soon as, you know, the 1860s. So, there's a lot of part of my, my problem is I'm going to s- stop hemming and hawing here because I haven't actually carried that story with my own research through. I, this is part of my like life's work now is to try to figure out how this change happened. And I, first I have to write the book on the 50s. Then I have to write the book on the 60s. Then I have to write a book on the 70s. It's going to take a long time. But I think fundamentally this is a story of transformation and change and a lesson that, you know, that having a kind of the right ideological fusion for one moment doesn't necessarily you know, grant you a victory in another historical era. That's, you know, most broadly what I would say, rather than, you know, they were sheepdogged and poisoned from the beginning with this kind of evil germ of libertarianism that, you know, doomed them, you know, in the the long run. But I I, I suspect Alex agrees broadly, but I'd love to hear his take. I I mean, I I agree almost entirely with what Matt says. I think that um, Lincoln, articulates different ways of thinking about freedom depending on his audience. The most famous one is him speaking to a bunch of farmers in Wisconsin. So that's where he says labor is part of capital because labor produces capital. You you know, the ideal is a man begins a prudent penniless beggar, works for wages a while, then goes off to buy his own land and becomes truly free. Right. So it's clear you have articulation. Wage labor is unfree. It should be a temporary condition. True freedom is control over your own labor. But he's talking uh, to a bunch of farmers and articulating their ideal back to them, uh, which isn't socialism. I mean, it's not and it's not socialism because it's not an ideal of freedom in which um, the way each person becomes free is through the collective control over the process of labor. It's individuated it's based on sort of small scale farming. Uh, and I think the, the really important thing, and you know, when Matt writes the book, then we get to find out how it happens, is that what, what, is, what Civil War achieves is abolition, but the meaning of abolition is indeterminate because it only tells you what you're negating, which is chattel slavery. But the contest was, what is it that you're putting in its place? What is freedom? It, it was just inadequate to say freedom is the absence of chattel slavery. 
because there were a range of possible ways of organizing the economy. And the real question was, is freedom compatible with just owning your own capacity to labor such that you can make whatever labor, labor contract you want? Or is it control over your own labor activity? And if it's control over your own activity, is it control through individual decisions about what you're going to do on your own plot of land? Or is it through collective control of an industrial process? So um, I think that Lincoln just doesn't, he, he doesn't have to directly confront those questions because he doesn't really live to see them be the central and dominant theme, which is what it really eventually comes post-war. I'll just say one little historiographical thing, which I know Matt knows too, which is that one of the people that Lincoln undoubtedly read um, for a decade before becoming president was uh, Marx. Marx was one of the most consistent contributors to the New York Daily Tribune, which is basically the in-house paper of the Republican Party and every major Republican politician would have been reading. And it was Marx or occasionally ghostwritten by Engels. So a lot of the ideas wouldn't have just been in the air about through native socialism, but would have just been there. And the kinds of ideas about freedom and free labor that were that were just sort of common discursive features of Republican ideology, but they were all mixed up because the conflict over different ways of thinking about what control and freedom meant in a wage, you know, in, a, in an industrial economy just hadn't fully developed. And so we can't, as I think that's why, as Matt says, we can't exactly say it's, it's neither predetermined that it was going to end up in a kind of libertarian ideology, nor was it secretly and truly socialist. I think other conflicts have to develop before we can understand more precisely what these different ways of thinking about freedom and control and labor really meant and who was on which side. Yeah, and the, the period in the, I'll just, just add to that just quickly, in the period of the 1840s, 50s, you know, the, the kind of ideological, you know, sort of, you know, ooze between, you know, Jeffersonian republicanism and kind of, um, you, know, you know, Fourier and socialism is you know really messy and then you know you throw in a kind of you know what what, what horse really called whig socialism you know too um you know which which you know got a lot of love in the near in, in that same paper in the 1840s and you know you have a you know you have all sorts of these you know strange correspondences that are misleading if you think of socialism and the republican party as being frozen in amber in the in say the 1890s but you know the guy who named the republican party alvin Bovey in, in wisconsin right. had been a you know a communitarian socialist so yeah. it is confusing i mean i think alex's distinction is that is the critical one in terms of lincoln's view about uh -huh. individual petty proprietorship versus you know kind of collective decision making on the economy and that's where you know most of the kind of mainline republicans never broke the seal on uh in their in their kind of public politics on that kind of jeffersonian individualistic um, kind of vision, but it is sort of important to remember. And as a, as a, as a, you know, that that's not, um, there's not a straight line between that and kind of Reaganism either. It's a fun, it's a deeply egalitarian vision. In my view, it's obviously racialized and, you know, dependent on all sorts of land theft and problematic in lots of ways, but it's, 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 it has a kind of egalitarian aspiration at its core that I think, um, that I think is very different from, you know, libertarianism, certainly. Yeah, I mean, as, as I was listening to Alex talk about that, I mean, something that hit me is that there is like a weird little echo of, uh, of that view that Lincoln is presenting to the farmers that, that you get in uh, contemporary uh, right-wing politics. Um, 
I'm, I'm sure, you know, like, like Rob as a, uh, as a lefty, you know, economist, you know, like I'm, I'm sure you, you know, you, you run into this, not necessarily from economists, but just from like ordinary people, uh, which is uh, that people will say things like, well, sure. You know, you can't live on the minimum wage, but, uh, but you know, that, that's, that's, that's not supposed to be, you know, something, something you can live on, right. That's not supposed to be for, you know, adults who are supporting families. You know, this is supposed to be like entry level, you know, early stuff, uh, that, you know, which of course is in the contemporary context, like really delusionally, you know, disconnected, you know, from, from how the economy actually works. Uh, but, you know, but there's like a little, like, there is like an interesting little hint there of, of that same, um, I mean, I, you know, in Lincoln's case, not necessarily a concession to socialism, but a, uh, but a, uh, but from that same maybe common starting point uh, that, uh, that you, that you might have uh, with, uh, with socialists, uh, you know, obviously much stronger in Lincoln's case, because I think even people who say it about the minimum wage don't really think that everybody's going to get to be a small proprietor someday. They just think that you're going to have a uh, you're going to have a better job, you know, but uh, but you're at least conceding that, you know, you're at least conceding that it would be unreasonable in some way to expect people to live their entire lives like this uh, in the same way that Lincoln's way of presenting this uh, is you know, is conceding this like extremely radical thing, as Alex says, you know, way to the left of anything that, you know, Bernie or any of those people would say now, right, which is that it's, it's that you're fundamentally unfree if, um, if you are living your entire life uh, as a wage laborer. Yeah, and it's uh, real interesting, too, because, yeah, despite how much these parties, like you guys are saying, have completely transformed over the intervening century and a half. I mean, like a lot of these same patterns are still there. And that's fascinating what Alex was saying. You know, I always think one of the most interesting things is seeing how like different kinds of elite people sort of rationalize their power or their system of rule. It's always just kind of a little interesting thing. And that's really interesting. Uh, I gotta say, I gotta read these books. This is pretty uh, juicy stuff, but it seems even up to today, when you look at you know, powerful people or you know, conservatives who don't want you know, big government or taxation or regulation or redistribution or whatever it is, it's always like, well, that intrudes on my freedom. You know, what about my freedom to decide what my workers will pay or you know, what humiliating terms I'll employ them under? Uh, it's always these people always say, well, I'm pro freedom. You know, I believe in freedom, like my freedom to do all these things. And so one thing yeah, we look at a little bit in the, in the history of this is that idea of hegemonic freedom. Like, yes, if you're a king, and you can decide who lives and who gets their head cut off today. Well, that's a lot of freedom for you. You have, you can just, you're free to decide who lives and who dies. How exciting. But of course, that's just a naked abuse of power over every other human in your fiefdom or whatever it is. So it's interesting because that same sort of, like these slave owners are saying like, well, real freedom is you concede your will and your life to us. At least, you know, you not white people who don't have the ability to have, yes, the Jeffersonian independent agrarian ideal that we pretend that we're striving for. Uh, so this is real freedom is me having power over you. Uh, that's incredible because that has not changed at least. I mean, yeah, now it's just a straight yeah. capitalist dystopia a uh, century and a half later, but it's impressive uh, how much that same sort of rationalization still happens. And also get to what Matt was saying about, uh, yeah, that is funny. Uh, you always see those, those sort of distorted seeming or decontextualized Lincoln quotes, which are impressive. I mean, they show you how much people took for granted, like the dignity and role of labor, at least uh, at that time. Although, yeah, like any other 
political figure, probably varying depending on the audience that he's speaking to. But I always think of like a figure from this era who speaks to this stuff is, uh, you know, the escaped slave and great uh, self-taught public intellectual Frederick Douglass, who's so great that even our wonderful president uh, is vaguely aware of him. So, yeah, you know, more and more people are talking about him. He's going to be in the garden of he's going to be in the garden of heroes. If they he's going to be the garden of heroes yeah. along with Reagan. I mean, it's yeah. what a brain scramble. Davy you know? Crockett. I think I think Harriet Tubman's in there too. Harriet yeah. Tubman. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, they can yeah. finally be honored because they're next Every, to everyone that, that like you know you learn about in about third grade. That's who made the cut. But, yeah. And then some random right wing pilot who became an actor or something like that. It was like this totally <laughs> obscure equal person. dignity levels, like very comparable, similar figures. But I just like Frederick Douglass, who I think we can say was if you look at what he said about these systems, I think there's a little bit less at least of a concern about, yeah, stripping the context or taking the words too much at face value, which is always something, uh, especially with political figures who are campaigning, you have to think about. Uh, but Douglas, I mean, he made the point that uh, yeah, experience demonstrates there may be a slavery of wages, only yeah. a little less galling and crushing in its effects than chattel slavery. And this slavery of wages must go down with the other. Like that's, like that's fighting words. That's more than well, labor and dignity. Like that's like this is only somewhat more dignified than one of the great crimes against humanity uh, from someone who ought to know. Like these are the things you should be throwing in your dumb family members' faces this Thanksgiving and stuff. Which is which is uh, which is fun too because um, the like one of the charges. I mean, actually, Alex, you wrote an article about this uh, for uh, for Jacobin. You know when. Um, it came out in this last election cycle that Bernie Sanders had once in the past uh, used the phrase wage slavery and it never really got legs, but for like a couple of days, there was this thing where a lot of, a lot of liberals were, uh, were being outraged about that because that was like trivializing slavery. So, you know, so that, that's an interesting question, right? Is, is, uh, is Frederick Douglass, you know, trivializing slavery? You wouldn't yeah, think tell so. it to him. Yeah. I mean, so many people said it. Like Frederick Douglass, Lucy Parsons, Eugene Dare. I mean, it, it's such a common, it's so widespread as a as a thing to say. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, and maybe this is, is I, I think this is sort of on this, but it's that it, it's not just that it was a, a common thing to say, but as you trace out the argument about wage slavery, it's interesting to see who consistently says it. I mean, in a way, Lincoln is important because he's pretty much the last president to take it in any way seriously as something that you can say publicly. And that's because he had to weave together the emancipatory coalition that Matt was talking about. I mean, it was a coalition of sort of Northeastern industrial interests, financial interests, Western farmers, some workers. And so you had to articulate the competing ideas of all of them. But after that, and I think this is what, what I think is baked into the Republican party is the class structure of it. It is still, in the end, a party controlled by the northern bourgeoisie. And that puts just a hard limit on how far this kind of idea could go. And it's why the critique of wage slavery becomes almost entirely an argument you find outside the, the major parties and something articulated as a, a kind of vision or critique of unfreedom that is largely the 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 property and, and feature of independent left-wing movements. So for me, what's baked in is not the, some kind of logical progression in how you have to think of freedom, but the limits that certain kinds of class structures within parties put 
on how far you can go with the idea. And so I think the story of the Republican Party after Lincoln is just a story of of why to really get the full emancipatory vision, you need an independent working class party able to impose its own hegemonic vision upon its party and articulate that as a fully throated, fully developed vision of, of a free economy. And, and that's really what, what, um, what, the, what the problem is and why the Republican party can become such a, so pretty quickly, not just a kind of right-wing party, but a party then for people who are setting up paramilitary organizations to assassinate labor leaders, you know, t- 20 years after the Republican, uh, after the Civil War, they've already started doing this, you know, the major figures in the Republican Party, you know, investing in armories in major cities so that the National Guard and police can go in and engage in extremely violent strike suppression among, uh, among workers, who are articulating these various these these very ideas? It's it's a feature of the kind of material limitations on how far those elements the Republican Party could ever go. Yeah, and and to that point, I have to I have to I have to take the the, the continuity punch here because it's literally it's in the span of, of not just a potential lifetime, but the actual lifetimes of many you know Civil War soldiers like William McKinley and yeah. you know James Garfield and what. Pinkerton, the founder Pinkerton. of the Pinkerton organization, yeah. a Civil War veteran. Absolutely. All these guys fought the war to, you know, to, to destroy the slaveholders rebellion and the war of emancipation, exactly. and the, the greatest yeah. left wing revolution in American history, uh, right. quote unquote. Um, and yet were, you know, literally later, just a few a few years down the road in their own lives, right. you know, kind of militarizing, uh, you know, the, the Northeast to defend capital. So, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with Alex about the class coalition. I do think it's hard to sort of figure out when that balance of power shifted because it's despite the fact that, yeah, basically Northeastern producers were always, you know, central and important to the Republican party from its origin to anti-slavery politics, frankly, from its origin. I mean, Thaddeus Stevens was a small factory owner, you know, in, 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 in Southern Pennsylvania, you know, Um, but the way the the kind of basic class politics of that group in the 1840s and 50s was a lot more ambiguous than by the 1870s and 80s and it punched a little bit below its weight in comparison to the basically the sort of farmer worker element of the party um that especially in the west and in and in new england was still very prominent you know and you know so of course the other other famous is it's not mass rallies of factory owners yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like if you're bringing like 20,000 people to like Beloit, Wisconsin or, you know, um, you know, Massillon, Ohio or these like tiny, tiny hamlets. I mean, these are numbers that like Trump would be jealous of today. Um, and the other the other famous episode, too, was I, much lower population. Yeah, exactly. Tiny, far, much harder to do travel, et cetera, et cetera. You, you're talking about half, you know, the, the whole, you know, you know, population of a whole of multiple counties in these tiny towns. Anyway, um, you know, uh, it, it, there's also the other famous episode um, is, you know, Lincoln at the at the at the shoemaker strike in Lynn. Right. Where, you know, in 1860, where he's still kind of making and, you know, historians parse those words. And some people think, oh, he's just basically saying, you know, you have the right not to be enslaved. But I think even cautious, most cautious interpretations say that he means a lot more than that. And he's Absolutely. willing to sort of embrace at this point 
a vision of what the, the positive content of free labor that involves some degree of worker organization and, you know, you know, at least a balance of power between labor and capital that, that, that is unimaginable, even frankly, 10 years later, you know, um, and that, and that does, I think, reflect the kind of change of balance of power within the coalition. This is one reason why I'm so interested in the kind of coalition, the kind of class coalition of our current, you know, uh, party system too. I mean, totally. Uh, the stuff that Matt's been doing on the, the midterm elections and these elections, like breaking down where the shifts are, you know, it's like, it's this stuff people think is somehow just like nitty gritty, boring, whatever, but it's like, these are the details that tell you exactly what the foundations are of who's going to be able to impose their control on the party. And if what you're doing is swinging professional class and middle-class suburbs, then we know who's going to be winging because it's just beholden to those kinds of shifts. But I think it for, and the analogy, I think this is why, you know, you mentioned Foner's been doing this forever. The book on reconstruction is the book is that it's really reconstruction that I think tells the tale. It's when there were, when, a lot of the ambiguities can no longer remain ambiguous in the Republican Party because you get more industrial labor militancy. You get the massive strikes on the railroads in 73, 74. And, sudden, and the Reconstruction itself is really dangerous to the northern property interests because you've basically said for slaves to be free, it's not enough just for them to no longer be chattel slaves. We have to seize the property of the slave owners and give it to the slaves by force so that they can be free. And only if they've got 40 acres and a mule, only if they've got land so they can control themselves rather than have to go back and work for the damn plantation owners again, can they really be free? And once you've introduced the principle that freedom requires seizing property so everybody can have some, so they're not dependent on property owners, that's a serious threat to the to property owners everywhere. And it was, I think, the moment that starts to turn a lot of the, make a lot of that fluidity suddenly turn into ice and um, the cracks start to form. Um, uh, the, nation, the Nation Magazine denouncing socialism in South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, because it's a constitutional, this is dictatorship of the proletariat, except this is the dictatorship of the, of the Republican Party. You know, the, it's, the people are outside. They don't enjoy the full rights because you need a, basically a, a, a legal power to coercively expropriate their property and give it to the people who ought to have it if they're going to be free. The South Carolina's black leg, black majority legislature, you know, con contemplated yeah. basically, you know, welfareist policies based on taxation. You know, yeah. then you know the northeastern elites start to scream about socialism and that this has is going to impact the prop. What impacts the property owning class of the South is going to, you know, uh, impact the property owning class of the North. That's why Du Bois called it a W. B. Du Bois called it a counter revolution of property. It's interesting. To think about what would be the analogous moment in the US now that would sharpen and clarify the class structure of the Democratic Party um, in those ways. You know, where's the, what's the South Carolina Martinsburg strike kind mm -hmm. of moment such that it's just suddenly Naked. made vivid and clear. It's, it's I, you know, if there's an analogy, I mean, sometimes these analogies are useless, but in the sense that it suddenly clarified a conflict within the Republican Party that had been sort of suppressed. Um, I don't know what the analogous one would be. I mean, the fact is there isn't really that kind of conflict right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it would come down to, it would probably be something, it would be another labor-based struggle where you yeah, would see, I, you know, or something that would affect basically, you know, property values of suburbanites, 
um, you know, or potentially some kind of progressive taxation plan at the state level that, you know, where you see those same, you know, the same kind of class-based splits about who's willing to pay and who isn't. I mean, it is complicated because some people will tell you that the basically suburban professional class is like, has a different, you know, kind of, you know, political economic position and character and thus ideology than the, you know, small business owning class, which is, you know, true, but I still am skeptical about its potential as a vehicle for, for transformation and liberation. Yeah. yeah right. I mean, like these are people who, um, you know, and I had crystal ball on, I thought she put it well, you know, she was talking about like the, you know, sort of Virginia, like DC suburbs, you know, where, where she used to, to live be like, all right, a lot of these people, if you pulled them on economic issues, they would, they would give you a lot of the answers that you want. Right. You know, they, they would, they would say, Oh yeah, sure. We should, we should have, you know, universal healthcare, you know, minimum wage is too low, whatever. The question is, are they ever going to prioritize any of this stuff? Push comes to shove. Right. Right. And priorities are politics basically within the coalition. There was a survey that uh, Bosker Sankar sent me the other day about, um, uh, about, yeah, basically that just disaggregates this, like where, where, where voters are, you know, you know, given a 20, 20 options about like their political priorities and like working class voters overwhelmingly always say healthcare jobs, you know, um, healthcare jobs, the economy and professional class voters overwhelmingly say, basically they, they say the environment, um, race relations and healthcare, you know, like healthcare is the one place where you can, at least now you can kind of thread a little bit of a needle, although not necessarily, you know, still limited. What? Once you start getting into the nitty gritty, I mean, yeah. there is there is a reason then that falls apart too. It's true, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a reason why. I mean, and this relates to your, you know, is it the Patagonian road to socialism? You know, why this can't be a base for for radical transformation? Uh, why during the primary, uh, Elizabeth Warren started to back off from from her earlier on ambiguous support for uh, for Medicare for all, and and started trying to you know to sort of triangulate about it in uh, in a slightly strange way, because you know a lot of the people who, who really formed her support base uh, kind of liked it, but they also started to get a little bit nervous that, uh, that their, um, you know, premium health uh, healthcare plans were going to be taken away under single payer. Yeah. And you have to pay for it. I mean, in some ways it does come down to that same kind of basically fiscal question that, that, you know, that, yeah. And this is what people on the right center will say in response to the kind of data for progress type polling that I think jibes with, 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 with what Crystal says in, in, a, in a kind of dark way that, yeah, all these things pull well, but then when you actually have to instrument, you have to actually institute the fiscal, you know, regime that's going to actually pay for them, that's going to actually do the redistributive part rather than just the free goods for the poor part, then it's, it's hard. And yes, yes, some parts of the left, the modern monetary crew and like other people would say, well, the deficits don't matter. And I'm, you know, sort of, I'm not a fiscal hawk. But yeah. but 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 if there's going to be redistribution at some point, it does have to involve taking some more from the rich and, yeah. and, and moving it around. This, this yeah. is where I actually think the stuff that that I mean, Rob's book about sort of capitalism and unfreedom and sort of stuff about reclaiming freedom really matters, because um, I think the professional class resistance to that fiscal policy isn't just a like, I want to keep my money so I can have my house and whatever it's that they think they work for it, that this is theirs, that they, you know, in some ways the professional class, because 
they went through, you know, they worked hard in high school, they got into college, then they worked throughout college and they went and got some advanced degree that what they have is what they deserve and that it's a violation of their freedom to take their money and that it's a disruption of their life plans. It's not just a constraint on the marginal consumption they've lost. It's a disruption of their life plans and a violation of their own shaping of their own life. And um, in, in that way, I, I, something I really came to appreciate is just how hegemonic a certain right-wing view about freedom and personal responsibility really is. And uh, Corey Robin and I wrote this piece called Reclaiming Freedom. And it was about how the right reclaimed freedom over the course of the 20th century from the left. And in particular figures like Hayek by trying to say, look, the left was wrong for thinking freedom was about becoming free from the economy, you know, being freed from having to spend your whole life worrying about your needs. It's about being freedom in and through the economy, but only if people are subject to the discipline of the market. And so to be really free, you have to be subject discipline in a market because then you're responsible for your own choices. That's the kind of crude recharacterization. And I think, you know, if you think of the Clinton years and the whole language of personal responsibility, welfare reform was called the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act or something like that. Um, and, and this is and, and it's deeply linked to the ideas of meritocracy. Obama yeah. talking about if I can be here, you know, if I can be president, anybody can be so long as you work hard. All the crazy Obama knots like tutored poor kids in the D.C. area to try and instill in them this kind of ethic that if you just work hard enough, you too can succeed. And, you know, that is a wide that has now become a very widespread view that you have created your fate through how you have managed the economy. And um, it's, uh, I think, a deep, semi-conscious, but powerful source of resistance to these fiscal foundations that Matt was just talking about, um, to tax policy. It's not just the loss of consumption. It's like, oh, I won't be able to go on the vacation I wanted to go on, or maybe I'll have to, it'll be harder for me to get my kids through college. I think it's like, they see it as a violation. Um, That's a really good point. And I think that's the real problem and um what is so what was so pernicious about the clinton and obama years in particular because it sunk that view so deep into um the just the mainstream respectable kind of um yeah like uh, there's there's, kind of opinion there's a liberalism that's entirely about um meritocracy right this is the um Thomas Frank, you know, not the uh, not the new book, but the previous one, Listen Liberal, you know, what it's all what it's all about, the sort of uh, version of liberalism, yeah. um, you know, replacing New Deal liberalism that uh, that really sees like like define social injustice as unfair barriers to meritocracy. You know, if, if somebody can't build up all of that through their hard work or whatever because of racism or homophobia or something else, then that's a social justice issue. But, you know, if people are just you know, living in poverty or, you know, or are, are become unemployed due to outsourcing or whatever. That's like a, that's, that's like a natural event, like an earthquake, you know, that that's just the economy doing, uh, doing what the, uh, what the economy does. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that is a really interesting point, Alex. I enjoyed that article you wrote with uh, Corey Robin back there because 
I mean, yeah, like all, all through the Cold War era, like in, with the New Deal period, like you had a, at least a wing of the Democrats willing to say, well, you know, yes, you know, we make a shared sacrifice so we can go to the moon and we can have the great society. Like it was at least a presence in the political debate. And so it was in people's minds. But I mean, that's really true. Like with the new Democrats and Clinton and yes, especially Obama. Like now, I think a lot of, yeah, otherwise sort of, yeah, vague liberal, you know, probably more, yeah, uh, meritocratic, sympathetic voters now, like we're just so unaccustomed to being called upon to make like a shared sacrifice that actually, yeah, it does come down to, as Matt said, like, like a real, like you know, there'll be a fiscal bite to this, like there'll be a tax bite. And of course, you know, we naturally want like serious progressive taxation and like pr- bring back the progressive grades and the income tax like corporate tax or a wealth tax, things like that, that real progressive structure. You may be surprised how much we can fund with that. But if we want things like a Green New Deal, like a little more ambitious than Medicare for all, like there's no question that we won't all broadly, you know, maybe not. uh, We have a much broader tax increase on some level. And of course, a lot of people, like you're saying, like do have that basic recognition that, well, I don't mind paying taxes. We got to pave the roads. We need schools that my kids don't go to, but others do. Like there is some respect for that. But as soon as that higher tax bill comes, like that really is where the rubber hits the road and people need to have some sort of ideological preparation for the idea that, yes, you will actually have a higher tax bill uh, in the spring or a bigger withholding in every paycheck so we can fund this stuff. So many tens of millions, fairly conservative Americans were willing to accept that because that idea was in the regular political discussion. Like now, it's absolutely right. That's completely lost. And that's why, I don't know, when I talk to my activist buddies and stuff, I always feel like there's a strong especially like the younger you know, kids that I teach, I feel like there's a strong drive where people want to go out and do a big action and we got to do a climate action or a action in defense of black lives. I'm all for this stuff, but I feel like sometimes we forget like that huge role that the education has to play, political education, before you can organize people, you know, make them see why they need to organize or do a big risky action that blocks traffic and pisses off blue collar people. If everyone doesn't already know what the issue is and sort of have at least some sympathy with it, uh, it's really tough to do that stuff. That's why I, whenever I uh, am trying to get my goofy family members to contribute to, uh, you know, uh, to do their charitable giving, whatever, I'm always trying to get them to pitch it toward independent and especially leftist media like Jacobin and Current Affairs, because like that is the boring preparation that has to come before you can organize a million people to stop traffic and demand climate action. Yeah, uh, but it is we've lost so much of that. It's rough. Yeah, and and I think that I think that what you're talking about 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 resistance to um, you know resistance to the funding part, which uh, which of course um, you know there there is an education component because this is you know hegemonic, right? It doesn't just influence people whose financial interests really are adversely affected by this uh, overall, uh, but um, but it's it is important to take on, and I think you can see even in activist efforts in the last few years the effects even on the left of how hegemonic some of that stuff uh, that Alex was talking about is, uh, because you know you think about uh, you know Bernie Sanders certainly uh, that there were there were various points in which he he accepted the sort of thing that that Obama always did right you know that oh I'm not going to touch any tax rates under you know, whatever the, you know, $250,000 or, you know, whatever. He didn't for every issue, but he did for some issues. Uh, and even arguably in, uh, in the post, uh, post-George Floyd unrest, when there was all this emphasis 
on on defunding the police, uh, which I'm not against. I mean, I think if your local police department, you know, has so much, you know, has has the kind of budget that can be used to buy tanks, you know, then then that can be, you know, take like I'm, not, I'm certainly not against taking that away from them. Uh, but I think that the emphasis on it uh, might uh, indicate a eagerness to try to avoid that conflict about funding because the, uh, you know, because there's a sort of implication that, well, actually not even an implication. Like I remember there was a uh, AOC tweet over the summer where she, uh, she was talking about, you know, taking, uh, you know, various city services that need to be funded more. And she was relating to police defunding and said, Oh, we found the budget line. And I wrote a piece for Jack, but about this say, well, no, you didn't. Right. Like if you, if you took away every cent from the NYPD, which is one of the most lavishly bloated, you know, police departments in the world, uh, you would not even be able to close the funding gaps between uh, the uh, the poorest and richest schools in New York City. Uh, you know, you, there there is no um, you know there is no way to get local social right. democracy without actually increasing a lot of people's taxes by a lot. Yeah, and I, I actually, I, I'm Alex. Alex, I'm so struck by the, your insight there, which I think is a is actually goes really deep. That it's not about the it's not even about necessarily the tax bill or about that marginal cost but that it's ideological and that it's about, and that, and that in some sense it's, so it's not even a question of like, oh, well then this, this, this bite is gonna, when I see this on my bill, I'm gonna revolt. Um, it's more about, you know, I, I think this is maybe, maybe what I would connect it to is another legacy of the, of the, of the Clinton Obama era is this sort of derogation of the, of the public sphere and the kind of understanding that the private world is where efficiency and, you know, happens and where things work happen. And, and so I, cause I think there's also related to that sense of like losing additional income, losing, you know, being constrained by this like big grabby state that wants to do things um, is the sense that it won't even work that, you know, and I think you're, you're seeing that like in Illinois, I mean, there's some mixed verdicts on this, but Illinois voters, you know, even though they, you know, are voted blue 60, 40 and they're, not at all very, you know, not a particularly progressive billionaire governor was out there flogging a wealth tax. I mean, sorry, a progressive income tax, um, you know, to sort of save the, the state budget, which is about to implode um, as, as, as a sort of last hope for Illinois. And voters rejected it. And I'm persuaded, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm persuaded that it's largely on the basis, it's related to Alex's insight, but it's also connected to this idea that um, that, 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 that this, that, that the sort of state government of Illinois is not competent or capable of actually, you know, enhancing anything with this additional funding. And so that my zone of responsibility is, you know, it, that, that money is better with me, even if services fail. And then of course it's a doom loop where more services fail and, you know, and, and, and the sort of, you know, the quid pro quo is the, not quid pro quo. What is the, what is the line line, Ben? Help me. The, the, the syllogism, I guess, is proved, you know, that if this, then that, you know, and it just it becomes a it becomes a circle of syllogisms yeah. and 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 everyone loses out. And I mean, I I worry that that ideology is still runs pretty deep in the Democratic Party of even of, of, of Obama, Biden, in that you still see real expertise, real efficiency Real know-how always is going to come from the private sector, especially now the new tech sector, the, the sort of the, the tech world. I mean, how many of the new Biden staffers that we just saw appointed are all have all these you know corporate backgrounds? They're the only people that know how to run anything. They're the only people that know how to do anything. And 
it really becomes this, you know, I think in some ways that element is almost harder than the pure fiscal bite element to convince people that Medicare for all can actually work. And frankly, I think that's a problem for working class voters, too. I think working class voters at this point are not convinced broadly that the public sphere can do anything for them, um, which is a bigger problem even than the sort of suburban yeah. personal freedom. Although, although how much of that is because they think that it wouldn't if it were implemented and how much of it is just because they think that it wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be implemented. Like I know, I know like a, a common, um, you know, critique, uh, you know, like people thinking about like why uh, labor, you know, lost the, uh, the last general election, you know, in, in the UK as badly as it did. Uh, and, and it seems like a lot of their policy proposals were individually popular, mm. uh, but I think maybe some voters hear what sounds like this long, elaborate Christmas wish list of like wonderful reforms that could happen, and they just don't take it seriously. They don't think any of that stuff's going to happen. They but don't you think it's that's real? I think that's because they can tell that it's a it's a setup for the state to do things for them, but a state that isn't there. So it's it's not when they actually control. So, for instance, the problem for labor was that they had, you know, the majority had voted for Brexit. Labor Party was against Brexit. So for all of the stuff that they said, we're doing this for you, they knew that when they had actually articulated a will and acted on it, Labor Party wasn't ready to listen to them. And I think it's a similar problem in the U.S., which is you might have a state that says it's going to do things for you, but it's not yours because the party isn't yours. And people want these to be, you know, I think people can tell when they're in control and when they're not. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I think that that it's, it's, it's the, the, the kind of problem for the democratic party is it's ready to do things for workers, but on terms defined by the democratic party. Uh, and um, uh, so the order of priorities, the urgency of the needs, the people actually making the decisions are not going to be things determined directly by working class uh, voters, because it's not a working class party, you know. So I think that I think that Matt's right about about that, and actually hadn't thought about it until Matt said it. But there's oh, there's since the Clinton years, there's been something, and even a bit earlier, there's been always been something very weird about the Democratic Party, which is that it has been the agent both that claims to be the party of competency and competent administration and the party explaining to everybody the limits on what the state can do. And this kind of is that it's incompetent and especially incompetent in precisely the spheres when people might want the most intervention, mass provision of universalistic entitlements and welfare services, but super competent when it comes to, you know, coming up with the most targeted possible sort of, you know, urban renewal scheme or managing the Fed or whatever. So um, I hadn't thought about it until Matt had put it quite mm. that way, but there's all, and I think that it just communicates to everyone who's really in control. Yeah, uh, and this, this question of who's in control is good. And this is kind of what I'd like to get back to in the last few minutes, because something that we talked about earlier, but I'd like to kind of, uh, you know, put a bow on, you know, maybe maybe go through one last time a little more slowly is, this idea, something you talk about a lot, Alex, this this uh, this small R Republican notion of freedom, uh, which in um, uh, which is uh, which uh, which is related to that kind of positive freedom that uh, that that Rob was talking about earlier, uh, you know, which is the idea that that freedom should should be understood not just in that sort of like narrow libertarian way of freedom from coercion. 
uh, and not even just in terms of, you know, your right to do certain things, but in terms of this kind of conception that's bound up in civic participation, where the analogy is with the, um, uh, is with these, these ancient republics, you know, in Greece and Rome, uh, which is why the, um, you know, the, the pro-slavery, right, version of it, right, says, you know, in ways that we talked about earlier, that, well, look, you know, you wouldn't have had, you know, everybody in Athens wouldn't have had time to do all that direct democracy stuff if they hadn't had a slave class. You need some people to be unfree so others are, are truly free. Uh, and, and the, the, you know, in the anti-slavery version, in the later labor Republican version says, uh, no, uh, some people have, you know, habits of domination, you know, that they're not going to be able to relate to others as equals. You need everybody to be free, uh, in, in order to, in order to truly have this so they can relate to each other as political equals, uh, and they can be, um, and, and they can, uh, you know, maybe we can reduce working hours. So, so everybody has time to, you know, to fully participate. Uh, and I, and I think that like maybe the sort of more optimistic way to look at, at your insight from earlier, and, you know, maybe Matt, you can, you know, you can get on, you know, on this at the end, you know, is, uh, is that, okay. So even when people have that sort of resistance to, uh, to taxation, to fund social programs, not just because of the bite, right? Like Alex was saying, but because uh, but because they think it interferes with their life plans, it interferes with a certain kind of substantive freedom, what they've built up for themselves, which is sort of the modern equivalent, uh, you know, the sort of professional class equivalent of what Abraham Lincoln is talking about is the ideal of freedom is okay, maybe you have to be a wage laborer for a while, but then you get to be a small farmer uh, and, you're, uh, and you're truly free. Uh, so I think that actually reflects something that might be optimistic. Right. That like there might be something you can take from this that would actually be good for the left, which is to think that, look, ultimately, what really moves most people the most is not this sort of legalistic libertarian idea of freedom. Because, look, the people that you're talking about, the you know professional class people who are resistant to taxation, they're not like they're not taxationist theft people. That's not their bug. That's not their beef with this. Their beef with this is that they think it stops them from being able to pursue the sorts of lives that they built for themselves and they should be able to build for themselves and that are tied into their status in society. Uh, and, and I think that there might be a way to build on that, um, you know, not in a way that's marketed towards the professional class, because as Matt has, you know, has laid out, you know, that's not ever going to be, you know, a reliable base, you know, for this kind of social program, but in a way that's targeted to the working class, say, hey, look, we want everybody, right, to be able to, to, uh, to, have, uh, to have some control over their life outcomes. And that's the basis for our politics. So there's a, uh, there's a question from a patron, which I'll just quickly paraphrase before I throw this back to Matt which was roughly about like how a sort of good left-wing way of understanding freedom can be used in future electoral politics. So, um, so Matt, you know, maybe you could speak to, to any element of that, right? Either the, the sort of nuts and bolts electoral takeaway or the sort of broader idea that there is something here that even though it has reactionary versions does show that the sort of vision of freedom that we'd want is one that, you know, I think people are going to find intuitively appealing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I actually think probably Rob and Alex would have better ideas about how to, you know, sort of at the theoretical level about how to sort of, you know, build positive freedom into a, into, uh, into sort of slogans and ideas that, that people feel speak to them and, and can use that, that they can use. I guess I would say, I just, I wanted to sort of respond to this, 
Um, so what Alex said about, yeah, or what we were all talking earlier about basically about competence and meritocracy and where that where that ideology is taking us and how that relates to this to this uh, to this question of freedom. I think, um, uh, you know, because on one level, you are beginning to see at least a kind of academic intellectual revolt against meritocracy. Like you, you're starting to see a, a new spate of books and and it hasn't totally sort of trickled down yet if that's the if that's the kind of intellectual theory of diffusion that we're using here but i mean it, it started at yale and i will see if it gets to you know syracuse you know soon i don't know but there are a lot of awful lot of ivy league professors talking about how meritocracy is 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 is, is a disease um which yeah which you know everyone can point out the irony of that but i do sort of I do wonder what to make of that and where that will go. And if that is, if not, not to, not to sort of go against all the writing that I've been doing for, for, for years about, you know, pessimism about the professional class as, as a vehicle. But I do wonder if there is an ideological opening to sort of go after, not just to go after the, the, the sort of, oh, uh, you know, minimum of sort of fiscal redistributive point, but to go after the ideological fortress of this, of this, of personal responsibility. If, cause I actually think if you, if you put it on the, on, on the, on paper, I don't think meritocracy is very popular as an idea. I think it's popular when it's intuited and when it's kind of talked around. I don't think it's popular when it's actually explicated, when it's actually like laid out because it's so profoundly inegalitarian and it's so remorselessly, you know, in effect kind of cruel and undemocratic. You know, I'm higher than you because I'm better than you. It's far more savage than um, than even a kind of um, even even in some ways a sort of gilded age capitalism where it might be because you know you had a lucky you know you you had a you had a you had an uncle or a father in law that gave you a leg up or or maybe you just worked harder. That meritocracy is almost deeper than that because it's about the sort of some sort of you know you know essence some kind of quiddity within you that has that has that has given you the good things of this world. I do actually, maybe I'm outing myself as another deluded Ivy League professor who's criticizing meritocracy, but I actually do think that there are some ideological legs there to sort of not just critique the word, but to really take a battering ram to that idea um, and, and the extent to which it pervades. And it, you know, it shows up in all sorts of different ways in the kind of the cult of, of, of saying, you know, the cult of believing in science, you know, which is, you know, just absolutely you know, an outrageous insult to like literally to, to, to say that if you don't vote for the party that I like, you don't believe in science. It's I mean, do we understand how condescending and, and idiotic that sounds, frankly? I mean, even though and I'm not denying that there are plenty of people who, you know, are, you know, you, you know, we, we can have disagreements about, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not denying COVID or something like the, the, the YouTube boxer. But I'm saying uh, but, I, but I do think that 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 putting this kind of cult of meritocracy, expertise, professional know-how, um, you know, it, it, putting that under the microscope and squashing it as best we can in our little mini function as, as intellectuals. I think that's almost more, that's as important as any of the kind of fiscal or economistic arguments about, about our policy, because I think that ideological fortress is the one that we need to storm. This, this, by the way, I really like that. And this, by the way, Matt, is where we can definitely say that Lincoln was more radical than any of the contemporaries because meritocracy is linked to a specific conception of equality of opportunity or freedom, which is that everyone should be equally free to compete for scarce positions of power and privilege. And the 20% that happen to do win that competition 
become the meritocracy and the 80% just get the rest, the shitty fucking whatever's left in the economy. Whereas Lincoln's view was that of equality of opportunity was fundamentally non-competitive. He just said, so long as everyone works hard enough, everyone should be able to attain the same condition of independence. That's the whole point of that famous quote. It right. is intragenerational. It's not like your children or your children's children might someday get to go to college. It's that if you work, if that prudent penniless beggar works hard enough, they should be able to not have to spend their entire life working for wages. And no, it's a no. radically different understanding of what the kinds of opportunities ought to be that are available to people and a very different understanding, therefore, of freedom. Everybody who works hard enough should be, should be able to attain some position in society that allows them to develop some talents and achieve a position of respect and status, which is the opposite, as Matt said, of the meritocracy. The, the right to rise, which is, you know, the name of, of yeah. Jeb Bush's super PAC comes out, oh, of, comes out of Lincoln's phrase, like, uh, like that same Lincoln speech. You know, the right to rise, that's a great point, Alex. It's a universal right, a universal yeah. right to yeah. rise. It's not a right for the cream to rise yeah. and the rest to sink right. or the wheat to rise and the chaff to sink. It's a universal right. Um, yeah. That's powerful. I've got to I've got to run, guys. I've got to deal with do baby stuff. Um, but I really enjoyed chatting with you guys. This has been yeah, really like cool stimulating. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to, uh, I'm happy that you said that. I'm excited that you're doing the, uh, you know, 19th century Rick Perlstein thing and doing a yeah, book about each decade. That's, uh, that's, that's going to be fun. So. Pray for me. I haven't, I, you know, it's, it's been hard lately, but uh, I, I got to get back. I got to, you know, I'm getting off Twitter and I'm going to get back into the archives. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Matt. Bye, guys. Nice to see you, Matt. Thanks, Alex. All right. Uh, so in um, in the that's interesting. In the last few minutes uh, before um, uh, before uh, for David Griskin comes on and, and, and we wrap this up, uh, I, I am curious to to sort of hone in a little bit more on that last question about uh, about how the left today could be better at uh, at weaponizing, you know, a better conception of freedom and the rhetoric of freedom. You know, if either one of you guys want to jump in on that. Yeah, you know, uh, it is tough because it's such a absurdly lopsided political and media landscape. You know, uh, the, these these days, you know, Sheldon Allison and, you know, David Koch, like that money goes to promote, you know, to buy ads for PragerU on Utah, YouTube and uh, Facebook. Like it is a tilted landscape in general, but I, I, I kind of the way I think of it is, uh, you know, you do have like sort of a core group of fairly shallow on today's right. Uh, it's a long time since William Buckley. But you do have like a core group of ideas. You know, like meritocracy is a big one. Like the free market is another one. You know, it is a cluster of ideas and they all should be, you know, attacked and destroyed. So I don't think there's any like particular one way to do it. Uh, but I mean, to me, just the, the basic of it is just building up that independent media. And I mean, that might be more of like a political strategic idea uh, than an intellectual one, but just being able to reach people regularly uh, with some with some other way of viewing the world that's not limited by uh, cable news limits of discussion is, uh, is uh, it's pretty important. And as far as freedom itself, you know, I mean, I, the one thing I always say to people is, you know, well, I, I you know, I teach I'm an economist and I teach in a business program, like many economists, sadly. And there, you know, you have so many students, like every student wants to start their own business. They have their own little company that does this or that. I think it's great. You know, these are young people. You know, I don't want to just immediately crush their dreams if I can avoid it. One thing I always got to tell them is like, well, it's tough, you know, like it's, it's good if you can have a spouse or a family member who's working full time 
for some corporate bastard so you can get your health insurance. Like things like like the, like the more achievable progressive policy goals of today, like Medicare for all. In my experience, it's kind of pretty doable to connect that which again, it was a positive freedom issue. You should be entitled to health care if we can easily afford it, which of course we can. You can tie that to like, well, wouldn't you be a lot more free to start your business and you know and see if it can work and experiment as a business if you didn't have to worry about like not having health care for the entire period until some business succeeds enough that you can get a nice group rate from some scumbag insurance network. Like to me, there's like, I mean, and obviously that's like a very near-term strategic sort of uh, use of the idea, but I've found that that, you know, if it makes business students think twice, uh, there must be something there. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sort of like, I, you're making me thankful that I don't have to teach business school students, uh, Rob. Um, I, I think that the the problem faces the left is there isn't a particularly coherent left that's really committed to the, what used to be the traditional left commitments to human emancipation as the core point of the project that could carry these ideas forward. And there isn't a kind of organized and sustained mass struggle that could be interpreted as an expression of this desire for self-determination. And so it isn't clear what to do. I mean, I, I just don't think it's, it's obvious given the absence of uh, kind of independent left-wing politics and ideology on the one hand and of a so kind of mass struggle that already articulates that kind of demand, not just people occasionally out and struggles, not local strikes, but like something, uh, something more like a, a um, the kind of workers movement that sustained these ideas, you know, for a century and a half. So that's the, that's, I think the limits. Uh, I mean, it's not the most exciting thing to say to the question, you know, the person who wrote the question, but I think it's the truth that can't be forgotten anytime you say anything positive. What I will say is there are things, though, that the, def the left could do better than it does. So one is, you know, just um, without question, consistently and continuously doing things like defending democracy. Uh, and I don't just mean like being ready to go out on the streets and kind of fight for it when it looks like it might be under the mostly phantom attacks um, uh, by Trump or something like that. But I mean things like always defending majority rule having a sustained and developed critique of the institutions and apparatus of counter-majoritarian rule. So for instance, one of the oddities of Sanders, for instance, was for all that he talked about a political revolution, there was no deep institutional analysis of what made the United States undemocratic. There was no sustained critique of the Supreme Court and judicial review, no real critique of the Senate for that matter. There was nothing about getting rid of the electoral college. None of the What's to that? Really to really sharpen that, uh, he wasn't even against the filibuster. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, he was saying, you know, longtime senator who's used the apparatus of the Senate to kind of get little bits and pieces of, of legislation through. But it just struck me that it wasn't even a feature of Sanders. It wasn't like he had to suppress the articulation of that kind of radical demand for just majority rule. It just isn't anywhere there. It was, isn't really much there on the left. And I think it's a place to start. Um, uh, I think other things are really important, like the defense of whatever mass strikes, but and other kinds of mass social organizations for self-determination. But 
I tend to think that the reason I'm hesitant about those things is that I, there's plenty of discussion of things like mass or general strike and certain sects of the left, but they seem, they're more flights of fancy. You know, you can't kind of conjure those things into existence. Yeah, those kinds of things happen when there's already major demands for self-determination among large segments of the working class. So I think the problem we face is just the fact that um, uh, those kinds of mass democratic movements within the working class have been winnowed down. And what's left is the, inst is the limited institutional apparatus of democracy itself. Um, and so I would think that's a place where you start. Yeah, I mean, if you have start with six point seven percent private sector unionization, and yeah. uh, you know, say, oh, we need a general strike, as and the labor movement not exactly useful, the right. the mainstream labor movement not exactly that useful in our what's left of it that useful in defending and for in any of that kind of real forward thinking about reorganizing and and the ideological basis for reorganizing the working class, yeah. Yeah, no question. Uh, so future guest, uh, not sure about the date, Sean Richmond has written a really interesting book called uh, Tell the Bosses That We're Coming uh, about just trying to uh, at least get people to uh, to yeah. think about uh, about what, um, you know, what labor strategy could look yeah. like that's not just like, you know, that's not just try harder to organize, want it more, you know. Can but I just say it's one of the best things, my favorite things about Jane McAlevey's book, her yeah. books now is that like the one of the core points about organizing for her is that it isn't someone coming in and organizing a bunch of workers but coming in you've only achieved organizing once they can organize themselves and until that point which is you know it's self-determination that's the aim you're not trying to go and do something for people it's that's the real moment of organization when the organizer the person set in the organized workplace doesn't need to be there when they already know and desire to to run the show themselves yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and in terms of a broader sense of running the show themselves, I mean, like there's there's a sense, you know, I was, I was thinking about listening to, to Rob before, you know, this is something I've, I've always thought, like, come on, there's got to be some way to connect the way that so many people, you know, not just even people from super privileged backgrounds, but so many people for whom it's never going to happen uh, are like their highest aspiration is to own their own business uh, with, um you know, with the uh, uh, this the socialist impulse that we we want everybody to uh, cooperatively run their own businesses, you know, because that sort of desire for autonomy, you know, is 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 at the is at the core yeah. of why people want that so badly. Why, in fact, they prefer that maybe to a really highly paid job, you know, where they were still you know a wage laborer. Uh, but of course, to 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 get there, you'd have to have that you know build up that infrastructure, you know, of, of a workers' movement that was organically linked to it. You know, so uh, so that people could start to process those aspirations for greater autonomy that way. So, we could obviously go on for hours, but uh, but uh, you you uh, both of you guys have been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, Rob, Alex, it is uh, it is always uh, it's always a pleasure. I, I love talking to both of you guys. Great times, man. Always always uh, always a lot of fun. Likewise, thanks a lot for having me on, Ben. I am now joined by uh, the great David Griscom, uh, who, uh, who before we get to the business at hand, uh, I should say, this is really exciting stuff. Uh, 
is uh, is now the uh, the co-host uh, with a friend of the show and uh, multiple offender past guest Matt Leck uh, <laughs> of a new uh, of a of a new Twitch channel and and eventually uh, yeah, a new show called Left mm-hmm. Reckoning. Yeah, man, we're really excited. Uh, you know, thank you to everybody who's joined us over um, at Left Reckoning. You know, it's been uh, it's going to be a really exciting project to be able to build off of the work that we've been able to do for the past few years with TMBS. Um, but also sort of broaden that out a little bit and, uh, you know, expand the stories that we're covering and also to basically, you know, try to relocate some of this left-wing media away from the, you know, from being too much of a Brooklyn scene. Um, but for people who are interested, you know, we do have our YouTube channel up. We haven't put our video, any videos up on it yet, but I think on Monday at seven Eastern, uh, Matt and I are going to be doing a live stream, uh, think tank style. So definitely check that out. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, well, I, uh, I'm excited by it. Um, yeah, you'll definitely be, yeah, we, we're looking forward to having Ben on sometime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I know you, uh, you, you mentioned this, I, I think, uh, you know, I, uh, I managed, you know, through, through unfair mechanism, you know, cause I had advanced notice to, uh, to get in the door, as the first <laughs> left for reckoning. So, um, yeah, he beat my mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank and, you, Ben. Not everybody's, not everybody's mother would be, but I know yours would because she's a patron of this show. So. That's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you so much. I mean, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. I mean, you know, so in December, basically, we sort of launched this on a quicker timeline than we had initially intended. So, uh, you know, December, we're going to be doing a lot on our Twitch channel and YouTube, um, you know, streams and things like that. We might have some guests we haven't decided yet, but we're going to start doing shows every Thursday night at uh, at 7 Eastern, uh, starting at the either the last week of December or the first week of, uh, of January. Very nice. Well, uh, I should, uh, oh, okay. Well, first of all, first things first. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, so, so yeah, um, we're doing something uh, a little bit different uh, for Outlaws and Revolutionaries today, um, which, uh, which is that, uh, whereas I'm, I'm sure that you'll, uh, you know, you tell us a little bit about the, uh, about the artist, we're really going to, uh, we're really going to hone in on a uh, on a specific uh, album today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so we're we're talking about uh, Sturgill Simpson, and you know, specifically his uh, most recent album, I think, came out in October, uh, called "Cut and Grass," um, which is a bluegrass album, and it's phenomenal. You know, some new stuff, but a lot of um, you know, just reimagining songs that he had already put out in the past with this incredible you know crew of people, bluegrass players, people who are interested in bluegrass like Tim O'Brien, Mark Howard, Scott Vestal, Stuart Duncan, Sierra Hull, um, all play on this album, and they're just you know ace pickers. Um, so it's a phenomenal uh, you know album out there. But I hope that people who are listening to this are familiar with Sturgill Simpson, and, and if not, um, you know, just give them a little bit of a taste. You know, this is a guy who, in my opinion, is probably one of the few like real outlaw country artists still making music. And I mean that in the full sense of, um, you know, being a little bit of a radical, but doing his own thing. Uh, he got really big uh, with an album that came out in 2014 called Meta Modern Sounded Country Music. I don't know if you ever heard that before, Ben. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have uh, I have heard of that. I actually haven't listened to uh, to to that album, but I've, I've seen um, you know I've seen the title. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a phenomenal one by far. Yeah, okay. I guess um, 
yeah actually in in this album you know cutting grass uh there's a uh there's a little bit um you know there's a line uh you know there's a line in one of the songs about like how uh you're not going to see me at the uh, country music awards uh yeah. you know but i'll always be in the uh uh, the smoky bar with the you know the the uh, the dim lighting and the bad sound system, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know which which certainly tells you something about the ethos. Uh, also, a, apparently a, a radical and a bit of a radical in another sense, which is that uh, I didn't know that until somebody told me of this on uh, on Twitter. But apparently, he's been a uh, past guest on the uh, Trillbilly uh, Workers Party podcast. Oh yeah, man. And, and that's a phenomenal episode. I highly suggest people listen to it. I was so jealous, man. I was spit mad. I like, um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for them. It's awesome. No, but he's like, uh, he, he didn't just appear. I mean, like, you know, there's been some interviews I've seen with him where he's wearing their t-shirts. So he's a, he's a big fan of it, which is great to have, uh, you know, somebody with connections to like, you know, left-wing politics out there too. Um, yeah, again, like, man, he's, he's the real deal through and through. Um, you know, so that, that album in 2014, I think is quite radical. Um, I, you know, I just have to say, cause it is so frustrating, like country music for a really long time was, you know, quite revolutionary just musically in the sense that while it maintained certain kind of structures and sound and, you know, something that you could definitely recognize, oh, that's a country song. It was always quick to incorporate um, new ways of playing. And, and, you know, for example, think about something like the steel guitar, I mean, when that first started getting, got into country music, I mean, that was a pretty bizarre instrument. And there's nothing really about, you know, compressed electric sound like that, that is, you know, particularly country, right? but they made it country. And uh, that's why Sturgill Simpson's like kind of psychedelic uh, country, you know, his 2014 album is, I think, so great. Um, but this, th- yeah, I mean, this album is just a, a phenomenal like tour of, of his music and range and also of bluegrass, which is a music that I really love. You know, that's how I started playing. I play banjo and guitar. Um, and, you know, for the most part, that's how I was learning to play those instruments was learning these old fiddle tunes and bluegrass tunes. Um, so it's a song that I really like a lot. Uh, Breakers Roar um, is a great f- song early on in the album. You know, as much as this album does, it has like a real ethereal quality to it. Um, and you know, the mandolin, uh, player, Sierra Hull is just phenomenal, has some incredible, uh, solos in that song. And it really reminds you, uh, how much you can do with just a few instruments in a room. I mean, I love, you know, distortion, and all the effects that you can put out there, but there's something really beautiful about this kind of oh, yeah. unplugged and acoustic, but it doesn't sound like, you know, most other genres when they do acoustic music, because it's not flat at all. It's exceptionally rich. Uh, and there's a lot going on in the background. Yeah, I think the I think for this album, like especially, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I don't know, um, you know, I don't know, uh, the, you know, uh, bluegrass uh, that well is a uh, is a genre, although I do really like a lot of it, and and kind of came mm-hmm. on some of it in a in a re- by like a really weird uh, route because um, there's. Uh, because there's this band called Iron Horse that does uh, that does bluegrass covers of uh, of rock music, and yeah. I, I was um, some of which I've got to say um, like like work so weirdly well, like uh, like like uh, Metallica's Unforgiven, like the bluegrass version of that like, mm-hmm. sounds so good and sounds so natural that like you would think this was just like some old bluegrass song that Metallica did a hard rock cover of. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but this one in particular, like I think this album, I think the combination of the the um, the like instrumental simplicity, you know, the simplicity of the sound, you know, and um, 
and and the uh, the intensity of it. Right, it's a very fast uh, mm-hmm. you know album in, in you know that bluegrass kind of way, and uh, and the fact that like the lyrics are so emotionally raw, yeah, and and even. Um, I don't. I don't know exactly. Like, like, sort of, sort of sad, sort of dreamy. Um, a lot of them are really dreamy. I mean, like a few of the, you know. So a lot of these songs are songs that he's already put out on, you know, his previous albums. But they work really well as bluegrass songs. Like, um, you know, just let go. Um, I mean, that's a song about, you know, it's like, I woke up today, I'm, I decide I'm going to kill my ego, right? You know, that's a song about going on a pretty nice psychedelic trip. Um, but it works so well. Um, musically uh to sort of have that kind of homey you know bluegrass role going on in the, in the background while sort of thinking about you know escaping from yourself in this kind of you know psychedelic way which i think was so fun about sergio simpson in general is like you know anything regarding like psychedelics or even taking drugs you know so much of that is like sort of dominated in people's imaginations by like you know rock and roll, you know, hip hop, you know, um, or, you know, then obviously like the most cliche, like Asian stereotypes kind of scene. Right. What's so great about Sturgill Simpson is that uh, I like, at least is that he sort of is able to explore those parts of life that are just as much, you know, true to somebody from Kentucky who loves bluegrass music as anybody else. Another great song, um, on the album is turtles all the way down, which is just going to bring that up. That's, uh, I love that song. I love that song so much. It's, it's like, uh, like, like in a weird way, it's, you know, like, like it's, it's almost this, well, as you know, you might guess uh, from, uh, from the title, right. You know, mm-hmm. which, 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 uh, which comes from uh, a, you know, like a classic thing attributed to, uh, to Darwin's uh, Charles Darwin's uh, ally and, you know, public defender Huxley uh, supposedly talked to somebody, you know, some woman after, after a lecture who said she believed the earth was on top of a giant turtle. And he says, you know, what's, what's the turtle on top of? And she says, Oh, another turtle. He says, well, what's that? And she says, Oh, you can't fool me, Mr. Huxley. It's turtles all the way down. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. and, And so as that sort of indicates, like in a weird way, it's like kind of like a, um, you know, it's, 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 it's 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 sort of like you know like there are elements of it uh you know obviously it's playing with things about religion and there are elements of it it's almost like this mm-hmm. kind of atheist anthem but you know as as that would sort of indicate but it's like also like really sort of it's it's not strident it's like uh it's 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 sad it's heartfelt you know and and it also actually explicitly uh references the lyric stuff about you know LSD and polycybin and things like that yeah, no, it's so true. I just remember uh, one time uh, Sturgill did a, a concert at the NPR's uh, Tiny Desk. And before he played that song, Turtles All the Way Down, he's like, basically saying, like, you know, all y'all crack me up because you write all these things about my songs. I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, most of these songs are just about doing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is why I'm always hesitant, or hesitant right now to, like, get too many of my interpretations for some of the things. So I don't want to get roasted one day, but... Um, I mean, like, yeah, all of those, like the kind of psychedelic songs are phenomenal. There's, um, yeah, I, mean, t- I, I, I do just want to say, like, he starts, uh, you know, he starts the song uh, talking about uh, Jesus and the Buddha, you know, with this kind of mm-hmm. poetic imagery about them. Uh, but then, um, and then he goes into talking about uh, psychedelics, you know, in the, uh, you know, explicitly uh and uh and and psychedelic imagery right reptile mm-hmm. aliens made of light uh and uh and and then sort of transitions from that to talking about love you know marijuana lsd psilocybin mm-hmm. and then dmt 
they all changed the way I see, but love's the only thing that ever saved my life. Yeah, that's and, true. Uh, the last the last stanza, you know, has the thing that I was kind of referencing. It says, so don't waste your mind and don't waste your mind on nursery rhymes of fairy tales of blood and wine. It's turtles all the way down the line. So to each uh, their own till we go home to other realms, our souls must roam to mm. and through the myth we call space and time. So it's like, it's sort of like, it, it's sort of, you know, kind of fall like walking the line between what you might expect if you know where that title comes from mm-hmm. and being this like sort of like sad trippy song about love, you know, love. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it's why he's, you know, just such an incredible and unique artist. And, you know, you have that and another song, which I just think is very appropriate for this segment. Uh, sometimes wine. Uh, I like a lot where he goes, uh, I've always tried to keep my glass full. Sometimes I have whiskey and sometimes wine. Uh, baby, why is it your glass is always empty? You come along and knock over for mine. <laughs> um, you know, and he basically talk about his, his partner leaving him. And he goes like, I can't tell you how much I paid for this bottle and how long we've been here. Your guess is as good as mine. Sometimes that wine don't hit me like it ought to, but that old whiskey suits me fine. Um, you know, <laughs> exactly. Like he can, he can do them all. Like uh, he can go, for being quite like radical and like and revolutionary and you know I, i'm just saying this like musically and artistically and, and lyrically to just write in like country bops man you know just like old school like country songs like life and ain't fair and the world is mean is my favorite song i think on the album um and the his original version of it on a uh, high top mountain which is an album like that was his breakout album that he like self-financed it's got like real the original version has some real like Waylon jennings vibe so i really liked it a lot for that but he has this great line in here. He goes, daddy was a highway, highway man, but he never wrote any old country songs. Papa never stayed out raising hell to the bleak of dawn, um, but he raised a proud coal miner's daughter and I'm proud to be her son. She told me, boy, I don't care if you hit it big because you're already number one. Still, you won't hear my songs on the radio or see me at the CMAs, but you can always find me in a smoky bar with bad sound and dim lit stage. And like that song, like the original version, I love, but it works so well as a bluegrass um, song um, too. And that's why I think this album was really fun. It's like, you know, not doing anything because you're not like completely reimagining your music, but just saying like, oh, look, this is a different way to present uh, these songs and something that's, you know, I'm sure for, you know, he's from Kentucky and he says it took him a long while to, come around to bluegrass since his grand grandfather was always like, you know, trying to shove it down his throat. Um, but, you know, spending a lot of time in Nashville, like hanging out with those, you know, the old heads and the people who are still playing this kind of really traditional music is great. Cause you can sort of keep your head above the noise. And I did want to mention, cause it's, it is worth mentioning, you know, so much about, you know, this segment is about, you know, pointing out some of the problems with modern country music, his uh, response to the CMAs, which if uh, people aren't familiar with at the CMAs, they didn't do anything to honor John Prine, somebody who um, had actually taken Sturgill in, in a pretty big way um, in his career. They didn't do anything to honor John Prine, nor did they do anything to, uh, to uh, honor uh, Billy Joe Shaver, by the way. Um, but he, uh, he, he has this great line that I just have to share with everybody that he posted on his Instagram after the, uh, uh, you know, they didn't do anything to honor uh, John Prine. He says, don't get it twisted. I wouldn't be caught dead at this tacky ass glitter and Botox ca- cake and cock pony show, even if my chair had a morphine drip. I just wanted to see if they would say his name, but nope, no time for Buddha. And I promise you they have, they were asked to include him. So a nope, no time decision was made by somebody on Veterans Day, no less. Um, 
you know, I, I think it's hundred percent on, on point. And uh, I think it's good that more and more people are realizing that the, the CMAs in that entire industry, the people who run it are just are jokers and they have no respect for the music or the people who made it big. And I love, anyways, I love having somebody like uh, Sturgill Simpson still coming out with awesome new projects uh, and also just like trying to pull people away from this really, really nasty uh, move that we've seen in country music towards like the CMAs and the, that kind of more corporate side of country music. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, um, you know, the song uh, you just quoted, uh, you know, about the, uh, you know, his mother uh, being a uh, being a coal miner's daughter, you know, uh, reminds me of a song that's on this album that I think it would be uh, remiss for us not to mention, mm-hmm. since, uh, you know, whereas I, you know, to his credit, right, he's not just like, doing that thing of like sort of terrible political, you know, music where you, where you just sort of, you know, rhyme slogans and, you know, put it over yeah, you know, yeah, some yeah. guitar picking, but uh, that, uh, but uh, the one uh, where, where in a, a glancing way and a poetic way, you know, uh, and tying in with a lot of, you know, the, the content of those other songs that are about, you know, uh, that are about loss and, and, um, and, um, and you know, like you know, like God, you know. I mean, I think the the, the phrase like you know, the world is a dream. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you know, it comes up like a bunch of times. This album, yeah, you know, the drug stuff and all this that ties all that in, but is also you know the most uh, political song uh, in the uh, the album is Old King Cole. Yeah, for sure. And, and and that's a phenomenal um, you know song, as you were saying. Like, I love the lines in it too because it's it's like it's not just like actually like a conservative lament either for like the times lost. It's very much about like, this has been difficult for all of us. Um, and now we're in a situation where this entire region area has been gutted out and we don't know if there's any kind of future. And like, you know, when the lines, you know, and people who can't get us by the title, you know, the song's about living in coal country yeah. <laughs> uh, and the struggles that come with it. Um, but he says, I'll be one of the first in a long line not to go down from that black old long, uh, yeah, my death will be slower than the rest of my kind and my life will be sadder than the songs they all sung. Uh, well, now old King Cole, what are we going to do when the mountains are gone? And so are you. Um, and I think that is, you know, just a, a phenomenal way to put it because again, it's like not a kind of overarching celebration. Yeah. Of, it's, it's, of, it's not romanticized. It is saying <laughs> the black long that everyone, in my family's died of the black. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's also saying like, we, we, you know, we're not coming out of it any better. And like, that's the point is like, okay, I might not have to be putting myself through that work anymore, but you know, we're not really finding our way in, in, you know, into a different situation or different like epoch. And it, it's phenomenal. I also like, I highly suggest, uh, you know, just, you know, again, the trail Billies is a good show just in general, but uh, their interview with him, they, they basically just um, talked to him about JD Vance. I don't know if you're familiar with, with him, Ben, the hillbilly elegy guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, they, which, which uh, <laughs> actually, uh, so the trail Billy guys just went on, uh, on, on Chapo to do an, do an episode about oh, uh, nice. the Netflix hillbilly elegy movie, uh, which is, which is a very funny um episode in all the ways that you'd imagine (laughs) but you know but yeah i mean jd vance is really like the sort of a pretty close equivalent uh in some ways to like a certain sort of uh black conservative who make who makes a living telling white conservatives that like the 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 reason that black people live in poverty is because of bad culture yeah and he and he does it at the expense like like the personal expense of his family too which i always just find really disgusting um you know what i mean just like exposing you know problems in his family anyway yeah he sucks and his book sucks and don't read it (laughs) (laughs) yeah which is actually the first thing um 
if uh, if anybody goes back and watches, um, actually the uh, the first, um, yeah, I think this is true. The uh, the well, you know, the first political YouTube video, you know, that I ever did, which was a um, which is in 2018. Uh, I um, uh, I gave a a presentation at, at this conference in uh, in Boise, Idaho. Uh, you know, which, uh, which is where, um, you can, uh, you can hear, uh, in the, uh, in the Q and a, at the end of the presentation, you can, you can hear, um, a friend of the show, Derek Varn and, uh, and our late friend and uh, brother, Michael Brooks, uh, in, uh, in the Q and a, and like a big part of what we were talking about, uh, is, you know, the thing was about Jordan Peterson and it was about this sort of like, you know, longings for a more like stable and fulfilling life that, you know, animate people, you know, sort of confuse mm-hmm. seekers to, to follow this guy. Uh, and, and that's actually something, you know, JD Vance wasn't name checked, but I mean, that's something we were talking about in that discussion at the end of, of the, of the Q and a, the way that like uh, both some like, you know, never Trump Republican, like national review types and also liberals, like the ones who love, you know, hillbilly elegy mm-hmm. uh, are, um, have sort of adopted this this view that you know uh, because like there were a couple of weeks after the election before everybody fixated on Russia when the obsession was with uh, the uh, so-called WWC uh, the uh, the white working class which is a phrase that I always hated because uh, for one thing it framed uh, post-industrial dislocation as as an exclusively white issue which is actually mm-hmm. absolutely true it's it's a disproportionately non-white issue as Comrade Malika Jabali has been covering very well for years now yeah exactly. Exactly right, uh, and uh, and the really uh, and what they sort of what these people you know being critiqued there like really get out of that is that oh the problem if you know if people in you know what was once coal country for example are um, uh, you know are uh, you know are living in bad conditions you know because the mines are shut down that's really on them for not becoming like postmodern nomads you know like yeah. crossing the country and throwing away all their family connections to try to find some work any work anywhere oh yeah i mean it just has to be noted if, if we're talking about Vance, is that like you know he's an ai stooge like this is not some guy who just like came out of nowhere and was like oh i'm gonna write a book about my life you know, this <laughs> is somebody who's been you know, spending years of his life uh you know promoting you know the most reactionary right-wing uh, free market politics who's now cashing in yeah um, I, mean, I mean like this this is somebody who's so much in that world that as was pointed out in that episode I and it's just like that book is like who the hell is it for i mean that book is i mean you know it's just yeah. it's, it's just something that gets under my skin it's, it's one it's 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 a zoo for liberals it's literally for like new york city liberals be like i don't know what the rest of the country is like i'll read a book you know on on these people so i can understand them you know it's just like it's a really weird kind of like circus view of of yeah, how the rest yeah. of the country lives. And it's like, that's who the audience is. Like the audience of that book is clearly not anybody from there, um, you know, to try to find exactly. proper solutions. And, and again, like, you know, I mean, you were mentioning about Malika Jabali, right? Who do you think lives in Flint to Detroit and Wisconsin? But, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, yeah, Milwaukee, you know, that uh, a lot of Malika stuff was focusing on. Uh, but but even in, you know, even in these other areas, you know, like, like um, uh, you know, like West Virginia, which by the way, uh, and, um J.D. Vance has like the most tenuous, like, you know, like his family is from the area he's writing about. But like yeah, he spent family. his summers down there, basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. and then go back to Columbus or whatever. Yeah. And he's so and he's so much part of that, like right wing ghoul thinks Hank world that uh, 
that he uh, he basically uh, even though like he doesn't really talk about religious stuff that much or hardly anything any right he basically converted to Catholicism to get you know to get in with the first things crowd uh, so mm-hmm. like like this uh, which is you know yeah you know, I think as was pointed out maybe you know if you want to talk about hillbillies you know maybe the least uh, you know culturally authentic you know yes. <laughs> you could possibly do there that's true <laughs> uh, that's why he got out ben you know it's like he got this jesus yeah, well, christ yeah well, exactly yeah. right you know that since he uh you know he he got out uh you know because uh and this relates to what i was talking about with mad and alex and rob earlier right you know that it's this sort of view that like the main problem like really in this worldview with um you know, if, if his, you know, family screwed up as, you know, mom is, you know, as an addict or whatever, like the main problem with that is that if they have a precious boy like JD Vance, you know, that, that means that he might not be able to advance to the meritocracy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I love, um, you know, that, that song, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, King Cold, you know, the way, you know, the way that it frames the uh, the sort of transition from, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, yeah, when, you know, uh, it's from making a living off that old black gold and now there's ain't nothing but welfare and pull and, uh, and pills and the wind never felt. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's both like, you know, I mean, it's both really, really evocative about what that, um, that experience is like, you know, and also it's, um, and, uh, and, and it tells you something, you know, like, like he talks, uh, you know, later on about people, you know, um, uh, people who are, you know, came from the city to lend a hand, carrying signs saying, shut the minds down, we ain't looking for pity and you don't understand. And again, you know, he's, he's not, uh, you know, look, it's, it's a, it's a song. It's not an op-ed, right? You know, he's not like mm. endorsing any particular solution here, uh, but he's, but, you know, but he is, you know, he is uh, squeezing poetry out of the, out of the tensions and the situation. Um, and, you know, which, which include the fact that he does have absolutely no illusions about it. Right. I mean, that line we were talking about earlier about everybody dying of black lung, mm-hmm. uh, but he, but he also recognizes that due to the kind of world we're living in, you know, if you're going to, uh, you know, replace it with nothing or you're going to replace it, you know, for, with, uh, I don't know, a, uh, you know, a, a I mean, for service, man, you know what I mean? Service. It's just like selling clothes and selling food. Right. And it's just like, that's not going to keep yeah. a community alive. And that's sort of and been the American strategy where people can, you know, grant for a job center where people can learn how to code and uh and compete with you know with uh 22 year olds who just graduated from college uh, you know which uh is is like the idea i mean that's not even like the ai ai freaks idea of a solution like that's the liberals idea of a solution no i remember barack obama coming out you know with that plan very specifically uh, it must have been like it, it was right before the election because i was working at Arabia and i had to just like take hours of notes on like obama speeches and political speeches and it was just is Obama, I can't remember what it was um, exactly, like a part of what, but it was like, you know, jumpstart kind of program. Like, this is how we're going to bring jobs back to the, you know, to coal country. And literally was just like, yeah, we'll help you learn to code. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then good luck. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you, uh, Honestly, internally, that's my time. Like, that's where this, where like the kind of nightmare of, of pre-Trump began for me now <laughs> that I think about it. Is Obama telling us to code? Sorry, what? Which, which, and, and by the way, it's also a good, uh, you know, because I remember reading the other week that, 
that by the end, um, you know, directly related to this, you know, because one of the things that Trump said, you know, when he was campaigning was for West Virginia is he was going to bring the coal mines back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that industry actually is, um, ended, is ending the Trump presidency, you know, with, with something like 20% fewer jobs than even what fewer left. Yeah. At the uh, at the beginning of it, you know, but I mean, at least that's at least tapping into, um, you know, to that to that desire, you know, was was a powerful thing, you know, for Trump there as it was, you know, with the equivalents, you know, many, uh, you know, many, uh, many places elsewhere um, since, you know, exactly the the uh, the contradiction that's that's been, you know, sung about in, uh, in Old King Cole that, you know, that this is you know, these were terrible jobs, but, you know, but you could, you could live off of it and feel like you were building something and, you know, you mm-hmm. had some kind of life. Um, whereas obviously, you know, nothing that, um, you know, nothing that came afterwards, um, you know, nothing that came afterwards gives that. So um, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, I mean, it's, it's a really, um, you know, it's a powerful song. Everything on that album uh, is, is, is really powerful. And it's like, it's, it's a very, I mean, I, I guess I'll just close with this. Like it's, 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 it's kind of hard to describe, but like, it's a very particular combination of, uh, of being this sort of, in terms of content, this kind of slow, sad, poetic reflection. And in terms of, of, of presentation, like being really propulsive and, you know, and, 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 and going very quickly. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really compelling. People should listen to it. I think so. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks brother. You know, uh, you know what you want to do next week? I don't know. I'm going to think about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be against, uh, I wouldn't be against sticking with, uh, with Sturgill for another week. Uh, yeah. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? All right. Sounds good, man. All All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Talk to you later. All right. That was the great David Griscom, formerly of the Michael Brooks show, now co-host with uh, Matt Leck of Left Reckoning. Uh, We were talking about Sturgill Simpson, as I think we just decided we were going to continue to do uh, next week. Uh, And before that, I was uh, chatting with three of my favorite academics. And uh, of course, one of the reasons that they're three of my favorite academics is they're not just academics, that they uh, they use what they know in their fields, economics and history, respectively. Uh, to uh, try to advance radical politics in the real world and write for a rad- you know, popular audience. So uh, those would be uh, Matt Karp, as uh, a contributing editor uh, to, uh, to Jacobin, uh, Alex Gurevich, also a uh, historian, somebody who's written really interesting things about, um, about labor republicanism uh, and a Jacobin contributor, and uh, Rob Larson, is the house economist uh, at uh, current affairs magazine. So always really, really happy to talk to those guys. Uh, If you like what we're doing here, please do consider becoming a patron. So five bucks a month, uh, you get early access to every single episode. You can, you know, sit in online on them being recorded. Uh, You also get uh, regular discord office hours, uh, group voice chats. Uh, We did one last week. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and of course, access to uh, to uh, to the Discord. Also, trying to uh, prepare a bunch of other bonus content uh, for uh, for for patrons. All of which is a you know gesture of appreciation because uh, it uh, it means a lot to me that you know that uh, that the show has been able to grow as quickly as it can, uh, and I hope that it can grow even more uh, so that 
like I always say, uh, all the people who are behind the scenes who help make this happen uh, can make a living wage, you know, from, uh, you know, from, from doing it, you know, or at least a, you know, part-time piece of a living wage uh, from, uh, from the work they do on the show. Uh, ultimately, I'd love to, uh, to be able to, uh, to make a living wage just doing this, you know, teach less and do more of that promoting radical politics in, uh, in the real world. Uh, but in any case, uh, the, uh, the guest next week uh, should be a really good episode are going to be uh, Natalie Wynn, uh, better known by the name of her YouTube channel, ContraPoints, uh, and Amber Lee Frost, uh, who's, of course, a co-host of uh, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Chapo Trap House. And we're going to be talking about a Catalyst uh, article that she wrote about hashtag activism the week after that. Uh, I, the uh, great Anna Kasparian is returning to uh, the podcast and she is, um, I think bef- probably in the first part of the episode, uh, is going to be another uh, debate with a libertarian. In this case, I think uh, Jason Lee Bias. I think that's, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but um, from the Center for a Stateless Society, I think um, it's probably going to be Jason. He's probably going to come on the first part of the program and then I'm going to talk to Anna. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, the, uh, the week after that, I am going to be interviewing the one, the only Slavoj Zizek. So, uh, really looking forward to, uh, to that episode, really looking forward to the two before that, that I just mentioned, uh, really appreciate everybody who, uh, has been able to, uh, to become a, uh, a patron on the Patreon, uh, and, uh, and even the people who, who aren't in a position to, to do that. Uh, don't have the five bucks a month, uh, you know, rate and review uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, like and subscribe on YouTube. These things really do make a big difference. And I really appreciate everybody who does them. Uh, that's uh, that's it for the show, at least not live streams. We're going to be doing um, live streams probably on, uh, well, actually for sure going to be doing a um, starting, um, well, yesterday when you watch this, um, going to be doing a series of uh, Sunday live streams on the YouTube channel uh, in which I and various guests uh, watch and uh, break down uh, vintage debates. Uh, so the, uh, the first one with uh, Matt McManus uh, was about uh, the, uh, the classic debate between William F. Buckley and uh, James Baldwin um, uh, at uh, at Oxford, you know, in the uh, in the civil rights era, you know, which is which is a really interesting uh, debate. Uh, in the uh, in the future, I know Doug Lane is going to talk about uh, come on to talk about uh, Destiny's debate with uh, Michael Albert, uh, who's one of the main advocates of a model of socialism called uh, participatory economics or Paracon. Uh, also, uh, I've been trying to do at least three or four uh, YouTube live streams uh, during the week, uh, always at five p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So uh, check that out again. Um, please like and subscribe on YouTube. Please rate and review wherever you get uh, podcasts. Come a Patreon uh, if you can. Really appreciate all those forms of support. All of them mean a lot to me. Um, until next week, left is best. <laughs>